fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredus. As we take on A Feast for Crows, Valar Reredus seeks to entertain while preparing you for the winds of winter. Many of the new plot lines and locations launched in this book are not yet resolved, taking us to our greatest heights of mystery yet. For the remainder of the Valar Reredus journey, we'll be looking ahead as much, if not more, than we've been looking back. But the core message remains true. The best books are those that hold up to repeated rereading. From George R. Martin himself. Oh, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. If you're watching live, feel free to ask questions or submit comments. You can also do so in advance of each episode or in between or really just any time. Joining us on one of our social media platforms, Facebook, Flick, Discord, and Slack. We've had a pretty significant uptick in discussions on our groups. I think people have been really excited about A Feast for Crows uh, for some of the reasons I just said and other reasons that I didn't. Make sure to check out the Isle of Faces podcast. This Scraps and Scrolls edition is Joe Buckley's show that covers the same chapters we're covering. So you get uh, extra coverage. Also checking out, uh, or also make sure you check out Nina on Tumblr. That's Good Queen Allie. And her thoughts are all throughout every episode as well. You can also join us on Patreon. You can get benefits, extra episodes. We've got some bonus episodes that are only available to patrons. We've got access to scripts and occasional shout outs, things like that. Go to patreon.com slash history of Westeros to learn more and to find the pledge level that fits you. Today, four chapters, as is usual for a feast. There'll be a few times where it's different, but most of the time it's going to be four. Starting off with Cersei 2, Kyburn gets a mountain, aka smelly corpse, smelly corpse. What are they feeding you? Then we have Jamie 1, the one with seven days of standing still. A.K.A. Last Memories of Rhaegar. Brienne 2, the one with a new squire and a new shield. A.K.A. Duskentails. Woo! <laughs> and finally, Sansa 1, making Marillion a murderer. A.K.A. Gifting the Gates. We went for the alliteration on that one. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, they're always important in A Song of Ice and Fire, but bloodlines and ancestry and so-called king's blood... Those are particularly important concepts today. Jamie's chapter makes a lot of subtle but majorly important points through a very unlikely messenger in Renifer Longwaters. Renifer's ancestor, Oakenfist, is mentioned, and his own father, the sea snake, Lord Corlys Valarian, concealed the fact that he was his father, i.e. hidden parentage. Though not in today's episode, we had hidden parentage via baby swaps in Sam's chapter quite prominently last week as well, as he said goodbye to king of the hidden parentage storylines, Jon Snow. King's blood is key all around there, of course. At the wall as well, just in general, right? Brienne's shield painting reveals an ancestral connection to Sir Duncan the Tall. Sir Duncan was Lord Commander for King Aegon V, brother to Maester Aemon. Aegon V became king after many generations of civil war in the form of the Blackfyre rebellions, which both he and Sir Duncan fought in prior to his ascension to the Iron Throne. The Blackfires were, of course, a branch that came out of House Targaryen. 
Sansa living out a hidden parentage story of her own as Elaine Stone watches over the last Aaron. He's very unhealthy. She watches the inducement of an ancient bloodline in House Royce, possibly pitting two branches against each other just a moment before, or just a moment after, rather, Marillion had sung of the Dance of the Dragons, a war between two branches of House Targaryen, the Blacks and the Greens. Queen Cersei, a strong parallel to Queen Rhaenyra of the Blacks, is somewhat concerned with the loss of her own bloodline, and for good reason. And of course, there's the ongoing lie of true parentage in her story as well, just as there was for Queen Rhaenyra. Cersei worries that her own brother, who has one eye of green and another of black, is coming for her and her other children as the Valonqar. These are not two branches of a family, but it is certainly a dance of lions in that it is a deadly family affair. And we'll start there. Cersei 2, Kyburn gets a mountain, aka smelly corpse, smelly corpse. What are they feeding you? Or perhaps we could say, what were they feeding you? Or what was Oberyn feeding you? Maybe, maybe. It's a great roundup of key Cersei elements. Her denial of there being anything wrong with Tywin's corpse, just her ability to be in denial in general, really is what that's reflecting in this particular case. Her paranoia over keeping Tom and safe, which isn't fully paranoid. Her constant power waging with the Tyrells inside her own head, where there is even more real and imagined paranoia. And her blind pride ruling her political mind with Kevin. And all while not seeing what all these interactions could do for her down the road, meaning she's kind of digging her own grave, which is appropriate for her and a lot of reasons for a lot of reasons that we'll get into as we move through this chapter. It's a chapter with poison hanging over it as well, which, of course, this is an affliction that Gregor has, and the question of Tywin's body as well, was he being poisoned? And Cersei, of course, is worried for her children being poisoned, which we know, given Tyene Sand, who knows a thing or two or 12 about poisons, including the one her father used here, is a real threat. And so the theme of Cersei having quite a long list of clear and not so clear and present dangers continues. Seems like a truly great man would have taken steps to ensure his family was in good shape afterwards, though, huh? Tywin's funeral and all this, everything's breaking down, chaotic, and they're all worried what's going to happen next. Well, I guess Tywin went to a different school of thought for that one. Chapter starts with this line. A cold rain was falling, turning the walls and ramparts of the Red Keep dark as blood. Is there a more fitting opening line than this for Tywin's funeral? I mean, this is a man who put himself on the political map via the reigns of Castamere, or kind of made his mark in history that way. So it is pretty appropriate that it's raining heavily, and it's gloomy and dreary, and no one's happy, not many people show up, etc. The reins are weeping over the red walls of the royal castle, and the only one really caring about him is Kevin, maybe Pycelle, and a bunch of people worried about what's going to happen. Really, he did this to himself. Just in this initial conversation, we find motherly concern between Cersei and Tommen, but she doesn't respect her son's nature and is kind of cold with him, a little sharp, not, um, not very nice. <laughs> She's concerned, though. She's worried about him eating and catching a cold, and these are standard, fairly standard motherly concerns, or father, fathers would have them, too. But it's magnified for Cersei because she's just lost a child and she has reasons to think this one's in danger from non-regular you know, regular health-related reasons. And of course, with her father having just been murdered, yeah, it's pretty fair for her to be worried. 
But it's troubling how much she wants him to be like Joffrey. It's not terribly uncommon for parents to be in denial about their own, the, the, the flaws of their own children. But this was Joffrey. It wasn't subtle. His flaws were just glaringly obvious. But Cersei didn't see it that way. She saw Joffrey as assertive, which he was, and tough, which he wasn't. And, hmm, yeah, it's, it's not a good look for one and your other son to be like that. <laughs> Cersei has taken to heart a lot of the lessons of Tywin's brutality without really understanding the context behind a lot of those decisions. She didn't understand why Tywin made the calls he made. She just saw what those calls were and maybe saw some results. In other words, Tywin used blunt force but he would use it to send subtle messages. Cersei is more of the blunt force to send blunt messages type. Here's a quote. King's Landing had never loved Lord Tywin. He never wanted love, though. You cannot eat love, nor buy a horse with it, nor warm your halls on a cold night, she heard him tell Jamie once, when her brother had been no older than Tommen. And right there, you can see a piece of it kind of subtly. Cersei learned a lot of these things out of context. Because Jamie was the one being taught these things, not her. So she learned it through osmosis or by overhearing it. So no wonder she didn't get all the, the context and missed some of the reasons and, and just didn't have a complete picture. And look at how she uh, assumes Giles Rosby is going to be a good master of coin because he looks rich. He has wealthy looking stuff. That's her judgment there. I mean, that's really, really shallow, shallow right? There's various old sayings out there in the real world that suggests something to the effect of people who show up for your funeral indicate a lot about who you were as a person. In a setting like this, it also says a lot about what people think of your family. And as Tommen notes innocently, the commoners turned out more for Robert than Tywin. <laughs> Important point that King's Landing never loved Tywin. Of course, Robert never sacked King's Landing and Tywin did. So that's a big, big deal. And even though it was a while ago, there's plenty of people that remember. I mean, 17 years isn't that long ago. There's a lot of people that still remember. Jorah Mormont describes it as babes being butchered, old men, children at play, more women raped than you can count. So this is, people aren't going to forget that. 17 years isn't that long for something like that. It's a long time for, you know, so, some things, but not for rape and murder and, and mass slaughter. That, that tends to have a much longer memory. This also, by the way, is relevant for welcoming a new regime into the city, right? If Aegon VI comes along, you might see the people inside the city take part in ejecting the Lannisters. They might forcibly push them out, help the invaders because they love the idea of this, of anyone other than the Lannisters, but they may also particularly like the idea of Aegon VI on top of it all. So it might be a double whammy. We love this new guy and we hate these old guys. Note that the small, quote, little knot of mourners, rather, at the great Sept of Baelor is outnumbered by the gold cloaks. <laughs> it's a theme, probably, the nature of Tywin's no love legacy. He kept his regime in place by, well, by having men it under his command, enforcing his will. Uh, soldiers just like these, the gold cloaks are effectively well, were effectively his, given that a, someone ultra-loyal to him was appointed their commander. Fear and force. That's... So you could say maybe that what Cersei wants, what she's learned from this, her 
pushing aside love and rejecting the power of love is that she wants superiority. That's what she wants. Power is superiority. Not love has nothing to do with it. Now we know that's wrong. We've seen examples of how love gives enormous power. Ned Stark is a wonderful example of that. Look how people fight for his family. Look how hard people are, are fighting for his children. And that's love, right? Yes, it's true. You can't eat love, but loved, some people who love you will not let you starve to death. A major thrust of this chapter and something that we've talked about leading up to this since the moment Tywin came on screen and probably before that <laughs> was just how destructive this legacy of, of love, of no love, of not loving, of, of not just rejecting love, but being anti-love. Tywin isn't just like, ah, love isn't that helpful. He's like, it's useless. <laughs> it's, he's he's really over the top about it, I guess you could say. It's not just, eh, we don't need that. He's aggressively against it. And that's, that's not good. That's, that's bad. Cersei hates wearing mourning garb, not because her father is dead, but because black's a bad color on her. She's, <laughs> she's really still wrapped up in appearances, which is what her father taught her to be. She got up early to prepare for this getting dressed-wise, not because she couldn't sleep, because she was in grief, or because she wanted to pray on her own, or because of worry about her family, just because she needed to look right. Now, it takes a while to get ready, <laughs> for especially for events like this, but it's still, none of these other things slowed Cersei down at all. It was only this thing. She doesn't want people to like think she wore the same dress twice. And it's still, these things are, it's not like those things don't matter at all because people are going to judge her on that on those things. But the fact is that it's one of the only things that matters to her. When there's so many other like normal human emotions that you would expect a person to have here and they're just not there because Tywin not literally beat them out of her, but push them out of her, squeeze them out of her, whatever metaphor you want to use. Here's a great one-line summary of Cersei. This is Cersei in a nutshell right here. A thousand years from now, when the maesters write about this time, you shall be remembered only as Queen Cersei's sire. Can you imagine being at like your father's or mother's or grandfather's or grandfather's funeral and looking down at their body and thinking like something like that? No one's going to remember you. They're going to remember me. <laughs> like, whoa, <laughs> that is cold. Uh, and so, yeah, it really is her in a nutshell because it shows her arrogance. It shows her lack of, of love and it shows the lack of love she got from this person that she's espousing this attitude towards. And it shows what matters to her, being remembered, being superior, being, you know, being seen as powerful. And of course, she's making moves right away, or at least assessments. Everyone at the funeral is scrutinized, but there's so little positivity nor humanity in her thought processes. There's no wondering or curiosity. It's, it's, a, it's a mix of commodities and threats mixed with hatred. That's Cersei's thought process. The very title of this book, A Feast for Crows, implies mass death, or that the death has either already come or is coming, or both. The crows aren't feasting on corn, right? That came out of a crash delivery truck or something. It's not your classic broken window in the granary situation. I just made up a classic situation. There's no such thing as a classic broken window in the granary. But you can take my meaning. While other characters will witness a lot of death and horror, Cersei's going to be a little bit unique in that she's going to have by far the greatest share in inflicting it. And of course, her family had inflicted a lot that she's inheriting, you know, legacy-wise. Not only is she a horribly cruel person, but as queen, she will enable many other horrible people 
Arguably the worst of them all is her Dr. Mengele slash Dr. Frankenstein ex-maester. Talk about a man willing to do the dirty work. From cleaning up after the brave companions to, well, he sort of wins over Cersei by his search of a overflowing chamber pot. <laughs> There's a lot of pure, awful rank stench in this chapter, isn't there? And, and it's, some of it's coming from the humans. Let's focus for a sec just how unnerving and creepy Kyburn is. She thinks of him as like some little girl's favorite grandfather, basically. And it's like, what? If grandfather was a mass murderer or a, a psychopath, I mean, he smiles when he asks Cersei to use the horribly dying Gregor as a study uh, subject. He, he refers to his pain as exquisite. This, these, are, these are strange word choices. These are very telling word choices. He doesn't feel any remorse for vivisecting people, cutting into their bodies. He's like, he blames the Citadel. He's like, I can't believe they wouldn't let me do that. I can't believe they wouldn't let me cut into bodies of the living. How dare they? <laughs> and so Cersei actually benefits from this, though. As, as bad as this association is, he does actually give her, you know, Sir Robert Strong, which that turns into a probably a pretty valuable ally for her. But think about this. I mean, between her father, Shay, half-dead Gregor, Cersei's been dealing with a lot of bodies so far. And it's this is where it starts to escalate because hiring Kyburn, I mean, talk about adding more bodies to the pile. This guy's going to just start grabbing victims from a variety of walks of life that, or rather, she's going to give him a variety of victims Servants, noblewomen, suspected traitors, just, you know, a singer, just all sorts of people. Just This descent into these nightmarish extremes that Kyburn brings to her is just more of this process. She's presiding over the deaths of innocent dwarves due to the bounty she put on Tyrion's head. When she goes to meet the new High Sparrow later in the book, she's going to find that they've just piled up the bones of the dead and skulls everywhere. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big symbolism piece right there. Not to mention the prophecy hanging over her with, that so prominently mentions the corpses of her children and then her. She very much has this corpse queen thing going here or knight's queen, shall we say, maybe. She's afraid of the darkness in her own castle from which her brother emerged and may emerge again, but she co-signs many others to that very same darkness she fears where one of the worst monsters of the series has been given a home. And look at this quote describing her. With her fair skin, it made her look half a corpse herself. Is that foreshadowing? Is that discussing her death? Is that more of this knight's queen, corpse queen symbolism? I don't know. I'm not going to lie, though. As awful as he is, I'm a fan of Kyburn and the Kyborg. I'll have a lot more to say about this abomination. Am I talking about Kyborg or Kyburn when I say this abomination? Both, we'll say. As both a character and a symbol of Cersei's reign, though, Ky the Kyborg, actual Gregor, Clegane, Reborn, uh, this is such a wonderful and terrible symbol of Cersei's reign. A corpse queen needs a corpse guardian, after all. It's terrifying, but it's the fun kind of terrifying. Kyburn mentions magic was used on the venom, the manticore venom on, uh, that, that was used on Gregor. Now, I don't know about magic. It might be magic. I'm not going to dismiss magic, but it's the same concept we see a lot of times where people who are an expert in some 
walk of life will will refer to their expertise as magical or or spells. For example, the armorer who reforges the swords, uh, reforges ice, he says the same thing about spells and changing the color of the swords. I'm pretty sure there aren't any spells involved in that. He's just saying that. But I'm not, again, I'm not going to dismiss the possibility that Oberon knew some, some simple sorcery that he was able to apply to this magic. We may learn more through his daughter or through the Faceless Men. Got a lot more uh, poisoning to come in this series, I feel like. So again, with that searching of the privy area, he turned up what Jamie did not, the gold coin of the gardeners. Remember, we talked about this was important earlier, that the coins would matter. And it's a really clever thing by Varus. It removes any connection between him and Rugen, because, of course, he's Rugen. Varus is Rugen, if that wasn't clear. We first saw Rugen uh, in... In that, rather, the Rugen disguise back in the Game of Thrones when Ned was visited by Varus in his disguise. And Varus was, or Ned was just flummoxed. It was like, wow, that's Varus? Don't forget, by the way, that Che knew who it was right away. Also, don't forget that Varus wanted to pit the Lannisters versus the Tyrells way back in the Game of Thrones. He wanted, in fact, Ned Stark to do that. He wanted Ned to send Loras Tyrell as part of the squad going to arrest Gregor because. He figured there's a good chance that would start some violence, which would put the Lannisters and Tyrells on opposite side of things very early on. And well, obviously that didn't work. None of Virus's efforts were able to preclude that alliance. And here we are. But it's not never too late for him to tear them apart again. So really... Kyburn isn't actually Master Whispers yet. He's going to be soon, but you could say this is his first act of spy mastery, and it's to fall for the prior spy master's trick. It is a pretty good trick, though, but think about how amazing it is in terms of its efficiency. If it fails, if it fails, Varus has lost one gold piece, and not even a full-sized gold piece. <laughs> Remember, I've talked about the concept of free roll before, where there's zero or very little risk for reward or great reward in this case. So for the price of one not full-sized gold coin, Varus may purchase himself fracturing between the Tyrells and Cersei, or at least some additional fracturing. For one gold coin, <laughs> well-played Varus slash Rugen. Something Joe notices that's, I think, a pretty good catch as far as Cersei's mental state is that in her chapter, she's very often thinking about something else she has to do. She's like, okay, I got to do this. I got to do this later. I got to do this later. She's just being pulled in a lot of different directions, a little bit of chaos, and not having enough time to do everything she needs to do, and having to prioritize on the fly, and that being difficult because she doesn't have all the information. So that's not good for your mental health. Ironically, Cersei starts to suspect this High Septon, the current High Septon, when she remembers he was raised up by Tyrion, and she's not going to be nearly so cautious about the incoming High Sparrow, which she's going to be somewhat responsible for. But what's too bad is this current one would have been a better choice for her to just stick with, because he is a nice guy. He is fairly genuine. As an aside, this guy carries a Weirwood staff, this High Septon, which is pretty cool. I don't have much to say about it other than it's yet another werewood item that we see pop up every once in a while. And you kind of wonder if it's any sort of conduit or anything like that, or just, eh, just a staff. Also though, this Pharaoh, or this High Septon rather, this genial guy, he is, of course, if you don't recall, going to be murdered by one of Cersei's agents. 
And that, of course, won't go well for her. <laughs> won't go well for him either. <laughs> um, the body of Tywin itself, just as a symbol, is it says a lot. It reflects how hollow, hypocritical, rotten he was. Now, his smile too. Tywin was infamous for never smiling yet in death. He's, you know, his, it's, it's a grin, sort of a rictus kind of pulled up that way. It's, it's a joke. Like he's laughing at the joke of his own life. Death has the last laugh on, on Tywin, mocking him and his pretensions of grandeur, as Nina writes. That's a good take. Tywin's first and greatest weapon, his intimidating green eyes, something that Cersei thinks about in this chapter, closed forever. And in Jamie's chapter, they're going to be like really, really gross and like pools of liquid are going to form in them. It's so... <laughs> and of course, the smell. We've mentioned stenches several times already. Let's focus on it. This time. Yeah, focus on the stench, everyone. With that anecdote about Ares and old Lord Merriweather and the chamber pot business that comes a little later from Lord Riker, he's... People did mock him, you know, before, and now we see wh where that's led. They can, they're happy to be able to go right back to that. <laughs> and Marjorie's cleverness here is also kind of symbolized by the rose, which, which Cersei notices is a straightforward maneuver uh, to put the rose in front of her nose to not bear so much of the stench. But this is also beyond just her cleverness. I mentioned the symbolism it's covering up the mess left by Tywin. Roses growing out of waste, turning something into more worthwhile uh, endeavor, covering over the, the evil that he left behind. And flowers do grow pretty well out of shit, which was where Tywin died, right? <laughs> so we wonder, was he poisoned? That's an open question. Uh, you just made me think of mushroom. Because <laughs> mushroom, obviously, is full of shit sometimes. And, and did, mushrooms did, grow. Whoops! And mushrooms grow from shit. Anyways, right. and did Tyrion? Did, if Tyrion was really uh, Tywin's son, then uh, he grew out of that. Yeah, out of that shit too. <laughs> okay, now that's enough. <laughs> what the fact that he was maybe having constipation issues is maybe a suggestion that he was being poisoned. Mild evidence. It's certainly not a lot to go on. We know Oberyn mentioned your father may not live forever to Tyrion. And we know he had motivation to kill Tywin. We know he had the means to kill Tywin. So really, we're only lacking the actual proof that he did it, which we probably will never have. Uh, but not, I, I notice I say probably because there are still people who knew what he was up to, like his squire, Demon, Damon Sand, who is now hanging out with Arianne. So there is potentially something to that. But... We can't really get any closer than that. I think it's entirely possible. It would make a lot of sense. But don't dismiss what's happening to Tywin's body as also a big part of suggestive symbolism. It can be both. It can be poison and symbolism for his, his legacy and for destiny and fate laughing at his attempts to be grand even in death. So it, again, it can be both, but we, we just can't know for sure right now if it was if there was definitely some poison going on. I kind of lean towards yes, but maybe only barely because of the lack of, of distinct evidence. The closest Cersei gets to actual like self-reflection in this chapter, maybe in general, <laughs> is that she admits to herself it was a mistake to knight and bed Lancel, but she doesn't think about how, you know, smashing him into his wound was... A, probably part of it as well, because his brush with death is a big part of what turned him so religious. That's a big part of his like born again attitude is 
how he nearly died. And becoming born again-ish is why he made these confessions. And that's why she's worried he's going to talk about poisoning Robert, maybe, or sleeping with her. So Lancel is the proverbial loose end. And as we know, it is going to bite her in the butt. And well, Felice and Sir Balman Birch show up and get chastised for wanting to name a child Tywin. And uh, they name the child Tyrion, as it turns out, if you don't remember. And of course, these two are both going to be victims of the plotting of both Cersei and Bronn. Balman's going to be killed by Bronn, and Felice will be killed by, I believe, Kyburn. <laughs> and woo, yeah. So um, another person that gets mixed up with Cersei and has the worst possible things happen as a result of, of making an ally of her or trying to make an ally of her. Because Cersei doesn't have allies. She has subjects and enemies. This all leads to Mace Tyrell. Her, maybe you could say, as Joe writes, her first real political test as the ruler. And he's all graceful and offering help, doing the kind of things you expect the high nobility to do in public. Putting on a show. He, puts the, he seems to put the realm first, says the right kind of things. Now, maybe he was awkward bringing it up at this time, as Kevin points out later, that he should have waited. But still, Cersei plays this very badly by embarrassing him in front of people. This is not what Tywin would do. And it's a good example of her not learning the lessons of her father, or perhaps it's her trying to be better than her father and not really having an idea of how to do that. She's just forgetting in her pettiness and her paranoia, how important the Tyrells are. Without the Tyrells, they're in big trouble holding on to King's Landing. They might not be able to do it at all, even with the Tyrells. But if the Tyrells aren't on their side, there's no way they're going to hold on to power. There's just too much hate and too much weakness on their side. Note, too, that Marjorie is suggesting that Tommen go to Highgarden after they're married. And, well, he who controls the king controls the kingdom. It's it's presented so innocently, but Cersei, well, this one, Cersei, certainly isn't going to miss. This is one that she's right on, I think. She's not being paranoid that they really are just trying to get control of Tommen. And, and yeah, we've known that for a while. It's one of the reasons they killed Joffrey is that Tommen was easier to control. And it's also very similar to what they were trying to do with Sansa. Kind of get, if they get her to Highgarden, they have control over her and have her on lockdown. And it's going to be awful hard for anyone to come and force them to give her up inside their great powerful castle with all their manpower and wealth. I mean, once she's or he is there, that's, there's no coming back unless they want it. The chapter closes with a dinner between Cersei and Kevin. Ironically, that's how the book's going to end out too. In Kevin's dance epilogue, he's going to have dinner with her again and it's one of the last things he'll do. So Kevin, seeing his change coming out of Tywin's shadow is interesting. He's a lot more upfront with what he wants. He's not holding back his words like he probably was with Tywin, or maybe he was saying them behind closed doors. He's very blunt uh, with Cersei, very confrontational. To be fair, Cersei is just expecting too much from him. She's like, why don't you just do like you did for my father? He's like, well, because I loved him and I don't love you. (laughs) He was my brother that I grew up admiring. And you, I don't like you at all, really, if we're being honest. He still agrees to help, though, because 
that's what Tywin would want. And that's still something he cares about, doing what Tywin was wanted. But also, he knows what's needed. Sort of like what Pycelle over the top says about Tywin always did what was needed. Of course, that's in Jamie's chapter, not this one. But still, it's the same event. He does it, you know, while during Tywin's wake or, or whatever. Man who does what's needed. So he knows that unlike Tywin, he's even more clear-sighted about some things than Tywin was. Tywin was in denial about his own children. We're back to that point again. And, but Kevin was not. He just allowed his brother to exist in that denial, perhaps because he didn't want to challenge him on him, because he didn't want to see his brother hurt by it, or he knew it would cause a rift. I don't know. But Kevin never, doesn't seem to have forced that issue with his brother. But he's forcing it now. He's calling Cersei out. He mentions all these different things. He reveals he knows her secrets. He's not shy about standing his ground, etc. And he also probably is disgusted by what he sees coming. He appreciated and loved what Tywin did in terms of growing the family and growing the regime. We, of course, have criticized a lot of that. But again, we're putting ourselves in Kevin's point of view here. This isn't our opinion. This is his. So he is probably very worried that Cersei's going to just destroy everything Tywin built by incompetence and paranoia and ruling through fear and greed. And uh, he's not wrong, is he? Even Tywin tried to remove Cersei from power. He tried to send her back to the rock and Kevin's like, well, I'm going to try to do that too because Tywin was right. Tywin wasn't in full denial about his children. There's a lot more denial about certain aspects like their relationship and about Jaime leaving the Kingsguard, but he wasn't in denial about Cersei being a poor ruler. I like how Kevin, just like, just like Tywin, just like Cersei, just like Jaime, just like Tyrion, they all are really good with the witty comebacks, the sarcastic, biting comments. And here's a quote. The king is my son. Cersei rose to her feet. I, her uncle said, and from, my, from what I saw of Joffrey, you are as unfit a mother as you are a ruler. She threw the contents of her wine cup full in his face. Sir Kevin rose with a ponderous dignity. Kevin would never have done this with Tywin alive, right? This is something that's only happening because of this massive change at the top. It's also a parallel, by the way, to what to Varys and Jamie. In Jamie's chapter, which again, Jamie and Cersei's chapters are next to each other, all but one in Jamie's case. And in that moment, we have a last drop of wine trembled wet and red between his chin and finally fell. And in this chapter, we have a very similar, the last line of the chapter is the, the wine running down Kevin's chin and dropping off right at the last second. It's supposed to be symbolic of their coming death, you know, a drop of red right at his neck. Now, I don't know about Varus dying soon, but we know Kevin does. Still, Varus is probably uh, <laughs> going to not survive the series. Now, of course, part of the reason, another reason Kevin is so upset is probably some of this information he's learned recently. The stuff about Lancel, for example, Lancel's confessions, Lancel admitting that he slept with Cersei, that's probably new for Kevin, and Tywin never knew about that. So this is fresh anger towards Cersei from Kevin, extremely justified. She's his elder. She really took advantage of Lancel. We don't really need to rehash it. We talked about it a lot at the time, but it's, it was extremely wrong what Cersei did. Lancel is, you know, it's too young to be, uh, have enough agency there. Cersei was the powerful, older person in this scenario. So yeah, that was just wrong. And if I'm Kevin, I'm super mad that Cersei did that to my son. 
she starts to think of, when Kevin talks to her like this, she's like, I bet he's working with the Tyrells. How much are they paying him? I mean, that's ridiculous, right? That she's, except that she's not wrong. She's only part wrong. She's wrong to think he's motivated by greed or that he would be bought off by the Tyrells. But he's, she's not wrong to think that he'd work with them behind her back. He does work with them behind her back. It's just not, oh, we're out to get Cersei and murder her. It's that they're trying to stop her from ruining everything. <laughs> and let's not forget, he is the one that consents to her punishment via the walk of shame, something else that Tywin would certainly not have agreed to, and something that Kevin will wonder about himself in his own chapter. He's, I, I hope Tywin would have understood that. Like, hmm, he would not have. <laughs> so, so apparently Kevin has a little bit of denial about his brother too. <laughs> but we'll get to that when we get to that chapter, which of course is the last chapter in regular Valar Reredus. So we got a ways before that comes. Even when Tommen innocently mentions the idea of the gods weeping for Tywin, Cersei is annoyed, more concerned over his, you know, fur mantle, his sable mantle getting wet than showing, you know, sadness or being uh, emoting at all. Despite everything, it, it's not hard to feel a little bit bad for Cersei. A lot of people point out that, yeah, Cersei is a victim in a lot of ways when she was younger. She's a, she has a lot of trauma. She had domestic violence. She has a prophecy of doom, which, you know, most people can't comprehend that, but it's very, very real. She's had all, this, all these motherly things that people can sympathize with, like the loss of a child, worry about other children. Dead mother. Dead mother. Killed someone as a teen. Yeah. You know, standard. Standard, yeah. <laughs> but despite all that, you still have to... I think you reach the conclusion that even if you can feel a little bit of sympathy for Cersei, she's almost certainly irredeemable. You know, I just don't, I don't there's nothing you can really do with that. You can say, yeah, you hope that Cersei's a, a lesson for how not to raise a child, how not to, how not to be <laughs> as an adult. But there's no fixing her, I don't think. I think the only way to deal with her is to remove her from power entirely and remove her from the ability to harm other people, which might mean Prison or death. Some comments from y'all. A desert stormborn Charlie One One is wonders what was Joffy doing to little Tommen that made him go away inside. Yeah, what is that? We're going to explore that a little more in the next chapter, actually, because Jamie is the one who goes to talk to Tommen about that. So, very good question. But it's important to look at these things from both ends because that's part of George's purpose by putting Jamie and Cersei's chapters next to each other is to look at these things from two angles. So this is going to be something we do a lot with Jamie and Cersei is raise a question in one of their chapters and sort of resolve it in the other, depending on what order they come in. Today's Cersei chapter is first, Jamie's second, but it won't always be like that. Jonathan Hagee is surprised there were no paid mourners. Oh, I never thought about that. That's very interesting. Yeah, what? It seems like they could have easily padded the crowd by giving some money out. Hmm, yeah. I wonder if they just didn't think of that. <laughs> it would have been a good idea, though. Yeah, I like that. I, I was mentioning in the chat, I thought uh, if Tywin were in the situation, he would have thought of it, I think. Yeah. Hmm. About appearances. Question from Kolnitsky. What head is on Gregor's body? I'm pretty sure it's one of the dwarf heads, uh, but it might just be his own head, and the dwarf head was sent to... Dorn to look like Gregor's head. That's kind of what I've always thought. Which, a little from column A, a little from column B, it doesn't really matter. But, because why bother switching them? But, except that you want to make sure they actually get Gregor's head. What's the point of, of fooling them? Yeah. As, you know? 
how can they really tell it's actually Gregor's head? But yeah. yeah. Because it would be easier for Kyburn just to leave the original head on the body as much as I don't understand necromancy. It seems like that adds an extra step to it that's unnecessary. If he's got a way to fool them, then he would take that one. I mean, how can they tell? It's a skull. But if you recall, when they see the skull, there's a little bit of doubt. They're like, is this really his head? And they, this, and they don't know. And that's the point. They can't know. It's not like they can do forensic studies on it. All they can do is look at the fact that someone who looks an awful lot like Gregor is still walking around and go, well, he has to still have his own head. They're not going to assume, well, maybe that's just a different head. <laughs> Why would they even go there with their thought process? They're going to see Gregor walking around and going, okay, clearly he has his own head still. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I wonder, well, maybe he switched out some body parts. Is that his arm also? Like what other body parts have been swapped out? Nina uh, adds a comment here. It's sort of funny considering Cersei's parallels to Black Rhaenyra, who Rhaenyra is, of course, on the blacks rather than the greens. And Cersei was fantasized of marrying Black and Red Rhaegar all in his armor. She thinks of how, uh, you know, that Black imagery because of the, the Targaryen armor has so much Black on it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a good, a good fit, good catch. Desert Stormborn Charlie Woman with another question. How long has it been since Black Magic slash Black Arts have been practiced in the Red Keep? Well, that's unclear, but I would say it, we can be fairly certain that Visenya was involved in that or at least uh, I, dabbled? For me, I think it depends on what you think of dark arts and black magic. Yeah. You know, because obviously Shiera is referred to as as dabbling in it and that's hearsay. She would but be one of the most recent. Yeah. She would be one of the most recent, except for if Blood Raven, if what he does is categorized as such, then he was the most recent. Yeah, that's probably true. It's probably Blood Raven is the most recent because he was hand of the king until 233, a mere 67-ish years ago. Brandon Winslow asked, do we think Kyburn or whoever named Robert Strong knew of the old House Strong? Yes, I think he does because he was just at Harrenhal where they uh, ruled for a long time. And if I'm Kyburn and I'm at Harrenhal, I go check out their books, which we know they had because we saw Roose Bolton sort of perusing a book or two. So, yeah, I think he would know about that. I think it's a nod to that. And I think it's pretty cool because Heron Hall is a place associated with black magic as well. It's an, in fact, it's possible he learned some additional pieces. He filled in some of the blanks that, that were missing to him in terms of doing this necromancy. Ash asked, did Kevin have any hopes of Castle Rock? That's not you, is it, Ash? It is. <laughs> it is. Oh, okay, good question. I don't know. That's an interesting question. Yeah, I don't. I, really I, I don't think it. he's ever expressed that. But yeah, but like when he sees Cersei being terrible, he sees everything. Like Tommen's not going to hold Casterly Rock after it, everything's said and done. If he's the king, who's going to get it? Well, it would Kevin's still go to Marcella, wouldn't it? Yeah, but uh, if Marcella's gone, or if Marcella's instead, she's supposed to be, you know, in Dorne. I don't know. That's true. But I mean, Kevin could maybe think. I mean, he said to himself basically, you know, like make me put me in charge and you go back to Castry Rock or you send me over there and you stay here. But I don't want to work with you either way. <laughs> so yeah, maybe he had, he definitely had maybe an angle to become maybe Castellan or something if, if he wasn't, you know, fully in charge. And as Castellan, you know, he can make moves and maybe try to angle himself as, as Lord one day, like the Karstark does. Yeah. Um, up in, uh, you know, with John, with uh, Cre Cregan and Karstark does that. 
Nina says, that's too good of a joke. Naming a champion for Cersei after the father of another queen's bastard children. <laughs> that's a good point. And uh, Rhaenyra's bastard children. Rhaenyra, who we is, were just talking about is, and often compare to Cersei. <laughs> yes, such an incredible parallel to Cersei. That's really good. I mean, three questionable bastard children versus three questionable bastard. Yep. <laughs> We mentioned dead mother earlier. Uh, yeah, killed someone as a teen girl. Yeah, right. Cersei kills um, Malara. And Nina Friel mentions dead mother. Standard issue in Westeros. <laughs> yeah, that is very true. There is a lot of that. Scott McCloy says kind of like Arya. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, I think that is funny. They both have a dead mother and have killed someone. It's uh, Cersei and Arya have more in common than we'd like to admit. <laughs> no, it's, the similarities stop pretty quick after that. Uh, so way back in early in the series, John uses the phrase nipples on a knight's breastplate. And it doesn't come up again until here. And from the rest of the series, the only time the phrase nipples on a breastplate occur is in a, is in a Lannister chapter. It's either Cersei, Jamie, or Tyrion saying it. And it, Jamie too, it comes up again. So it's kind of like a little, maybe a Lannister joke, maybe reflecting their, their brand of sarcasm, which is something that they all seem to share. One of the few common traits of, of this branch of the Lannisters I'm, is their sarcasm. I like the idea that like Tywin said it once and then they all, like it really stuck with them. <laughs> he was like, nipples on a breastplate. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Olena just owns Cersei so hard and, know, and proves that she knows how to because Cersei is so vulnerable to insults and Olena is so skilled at giving them that, that comment, leave her to her grief is so on the nose because it's true. Cersei is not grieving. And yet, Olena identifying that and pointing it out just enrages Cersei. Cersei controls herself, but internally she's like, I will see you dead, old woman. And well, that might be accurate. She may indeed see Olena dead. Uh, of course, a 30-something-year-old woman outliving a 60-year-old-something woman is not, not exactly a, a, an own. <laughs> So, uh, but I do look forward to more Olena versus Cersei business. Um, yeah. But it, it, it goes, speaks to a larger point that Cersei can be having rational thoughts and then just something like that can set her off and her thoughts go, become very irrational, very paranoid, very vindictive really quickly. And that's, that is Cersei. Being inside her head is like rocking back and forth. Title, you know, the waves crash and then they go away and it's calm and then it comes crashing back and you never know when it's going to be one or the other. Haleen the pyromancer promised her that a flaming hand would burn in the sky above the city on the day her father's bones went west. Well, that is, that is kind of strange. Uh, I really wonder how, what, what this reference is doing here because the flaming hand is like, that's a R'hllor reference. Remember when Tyrion's on that ship with Makoro and his five assistants and they're like the fiery hand is what they're called. Tyrion nicknames them the fingers because there's five of them. And they're going to be coming west. The R'hllorists are going to be heading west under a flaming hand to Westeros. So, but it's strange that this reference is here in this chapter at this moment. Maybe just because the pyromancers are going to be like, ooh, we want to team up with the Relorists. Yeah, I think it's weird for the pyromancers to have this ability to be able to say something like this. One, that they have those skills, right? Yeah, it's like fireworks experts. And I guess that just <laughs> means that they're sending Tywin's bones to Casterly Rock to live there. Yeah, because yeah, he's being buried in the Hall of Heroes there. So, you know, whenever that happens, we can expect any second for the Relorists to arrive. <laughs> Here they come. They saw the sun. They saw the hand in the sky. They're like, why is it green? Ah, whatever. It's still a burning hand. Don't quibble. <laughs> we have this vibe of Tywin coming into the city with this 
incredible armor that is described here. I'm not going to bother quoting it. We've described it before we first saw it at the Green Fork battle when even Tyrion is impressed by it. Like, man, my dad's armor is something else. And it's that same armor here. That's part of the vibe, entering the city and leaving it in the same uh, manner. Uh, Lord Giles, real quick note on Lord Giles. His red silk handkerchief that he keeps coughing into is a nod to Tywin covering the bodies of the dead Lannister, or the dead Targaryen children, Elia, or rather, uh, Rhaenys and Aegon, with red silk cloaks so that the blood didn't show. Well, that's what, that's what Lord Giles is doing as well. He's, he's coughing into a red silk handkerchief because he has uh, probably lung cancer. I don't know. He dies of his cough, you know, not that long uh, from now. So uh, it's almost certainly the same kind of concept, hiding blood in red silk. A question from uh, Bran Winslow on Discord was, did this Tywin statue ever happen? Because there was a stone cut, there was a promise to have a stone Tywin made and added to the Lion's Gate, which that's an appropriate place to put it, the Lion Gate at entering King's Landing. Now, we don't know if that ever happened. Now, it was, it's, it's, to be clear, it was Lord Giles who said he would commission the statue. Since he died, we don't know if the statue was ever commissioned uh, or finished. Now, in my opinion, it wouldn't be done by now. So if he had, did have it commissioned, it still might be in progress, but it's possible that order was never given. We don't know. Maybe we'll see that statue appear one day, but that's and, the kind of obscure... And be pulled down. Yeah, it could very, be pulled down. Yeah, very fitting. That would be interesting. That would be very interesting, pulling down the Tywin statue. Okay, and of course, we're going to have another prominent statue in this next one. Jamie won, the one with seven days of standing still, aka last memories of Rhaegar. Worth repeating that six of Jamie's seven chapters are next to a Cersei chapter, and the one that isn't is next to a Brienne chapter. So like Brienne's chapters, there's a lot of history in this Jamie chapter, and that's not the case with Cersei chapters, because she's just not very interested in history, though. It could certainly help her out when, say, she you know, rearms the faith militants, that, that would be good for her to have. She might not have made that decision if she knew better, but Jamie and Cersei have other things in common. Uh, despite their relationship deteriorating more every day, uh, he's already split with Tyrion, but has something in common with him there, which is guilt. Both Tyrion and Jamie are, are filled with guilt after the death of Tywin, and the prominent memories and sensations he has in this chapter lead him to similar memories and sensations meaning he thinks about the stench of his father's body and it reminds him of the stench of his hand when he was, well, when he first lost it and they made him wear it. One vigil reminds him of his knighting, which he stood a vigil then. So that's another reminder. And that reminds him of Ares. And Ares reminds him of Rhaegar. And Arthur Dane, of course, comes up throughout all this because that's the man who knighted him. And he remembers what Arthur said to him during his knighting. I mean, let's be honest. You're, he's just standing there having a vigil and slowly getting tired and weary. And what else is he going to do but think and have his mind wander to, to a variety of places? It's, it's very fitting. And here's how it starts. Sir Jamie Lannister, all in white, stood beside his father's beer, five fingers curled about the hilt of a golden great sword. So Jamie's not standing this seven-day vigil because he loved his father. It, to me, it's more a mix of feeling responsible slash guilty and his newfound or renewed interest, rather, in being a man of honor, a knight, especially one of the king's guards, especially the Lord Commander. This is the kind of thing such a man would do, stand vigil for their father, for the hand of the king. And Nina writes, this chapter is where Jamie's mantra for A Feast for Crows starts. 
Much of much is made of Cersei's paranoia in A Feast for Crows, but Jamie's thoughts on Tyrion's words to him about Cersei haunt him almost as much as the Valonqar prophecy haunts Cersei. He is desperate to believe that Tyrion lied to him, but he just can't force himself to think that way. He suspects that Tyrion wasn't lying. And this idea that Cersei hasn't been faithful to him just really, really gets to him. It's such a big deal. It's, a, it's really kind of amazing how much her infidelity matters to him more so than so many other major things, like his father's death, like Joffrey's death, like all these other things. He's still rocking the boat a bit, despite putting up appearances and behaving like an honorable knight, like a Lord Commander, because his version of honor includes resentment towards the aspects of knighthood that caused his oaths to conflict in the first place. The personal and political conflict in him is represented well by Cersei's annoyance in his choice of dress. She doesn't like his combination of large golden greatsword and Kingsguard white. She wants him to look more like a Lannister, like Tywin did. Interesting that he's choosing a greatsword, which is a sword that requires two hands to wield. Yet still, it gives him comfort to be holding a sword. Continuing the theme in Cersei's chapter, we have this line, even in the West, Lord Tywin had been more respected than beloved. Yeah. <laughs> Again, it just... There is no escaping this point. No one loved Tywin except for a couple of exceptions. So what about this business with Rhaegar? This is a huge part of the chapter is, is Jamie reflecting on roads not taken, of almosts, of what ifs, of Rhaegar saying, look, when I come back from the Battle of the Trident, we'll make changes. Nina expresses frustration at this, and I'm with her. It's like, why go fight this battle if you're going to like, make your father step down? Why do that? Make your father step down now and present the rebels with this declaration that you forced Ares to step down and thus their grievances have been addressed. That's a, such a much better solution in my opinion. Now, maybe there's reasons. Maybe there's just Rhaegar has to make a show of force to defeat the rebels or else it's said that the rebels beat them. They have to beat them in the field or, or it looks weak. There's, a, there's some medieval thinking going on here that maybe we should give a little more credit to. but. Ares was undoubtedly way beyond the feudal contract. He had burned people to death without trial, high nobles even. He wasn't a king anymore. He had the power of a king, but it was no longer behaving like one. It was valid to rebel against Ares. And Rhaegar should have perhaps acknowledged that. I mean, he saw, he knows what his father did or the various things his father did, and his father was showing madness well before any of this. So, yeah, Rhaegar was just, I don't know, distracted by prophecies and Lyanna, I don't know. <laughs> but he did, you know, hide out for a lot of the war while he was with Lyanna. Not that he was hiding necessarily from the danger, but he was, well, I don't know what he was doing, but it's really hard to know what Rhaegar was thinking. But we do know that Jamie considers this a really important moment and a really pivotal moment. And it, again, it includes, amongst these thoughts, Jamie's mind goes to related topics. Again, I brought up Rhaegar and Arthur Dane. Or I, rather, I brought up how the thinking of Rhaegar relates to Arthur Dane because those two were best friends and tied together quite a bit. I wonder what Jamie was thinking when Rhaegar rode off to war without Arthur Dane with him. He probably thought that was odd, uh, maybe wondered about it, but that is, those thoughts aren't included here. But nevertheless, surely they happened. You don't just forget about Arthur Dane, especially when you're Jamie Lannister and that man was literally your idol. <laughs> 
So I assume George has his reasons for holding back on that for now. I think we're not done with Jamie thinking about Arthur Dane. I think that's going to happen again. Might be a little bit like Ned, who doesn't want to think everything he possibly could about Arthur Dane for story reasons. That's another person who probably could have told us a lot more about Arthur Dane that hasn't. But let's be honest, Jamie knew Arthur better than Ned did by a long shot. Never forget, too, that Rhaegar knighted the mountain. The man who slew his wife and son, or according to Varys, his imposter son, but that's a whole other story. So Rhaegar's discussions at council, let's come back to that. If they had happened, this would have been monumental and it may be foreshadowing for what we have coming at the end of the series. If we get some sort of, he calls it a council, but it, it might've been a great council. Maybe it would have been a kind of a, more of a straightforward great council because Gregor clearly would have been the man to elect, right? They're not going to elect young Viserys and, and who else was there? There's no other Targaryens. Daenerys was literally not born yet by the time Rhaegar rode off to fight at the Trident. So she's certainly not an option. And if baby Viserys isn't an option, then even more baby Daenerys is not. So really, it would have been kind of a, a foregone conclusion that Rhaegar would have, quote unquote, won the Great Council. But it still could have been really interesting to see how it broken down. And the, the concept of it sets up, again, the possibility for such at the end of the books. Joe points out how rare it is we get a clear memory of Rhaegar Cersei's going to think of his face, but she didn't know him very well. The closest we have is Danny at the House of the Undying gets kind of a clear image of him, but it's, it's, it fades quickly, and she's not quite sure what she's seeing. The reader understands more about that scene than Danny does by a long shot. You wonder, too, if Jamie ever just offhand heard Rhaegar mention something about prophecy or the supernatural. In addition to Jamie later thinking more about Arthur Dane, he could just think stuff about Rhaegar that matters. It's, it's a missing piece that we assume we'll learn a lot about Rhaegar, Lyanna from Bran, from Howland Reed. But don't sleep on Jamie as an option for some of this. Jamie might not even understand what he's thinking. He might remember Rhaegar talking about prophecy and have no idea what those words mean, but we readers might know. We might, they might be a giant clue for us while it confuses Jamie. Because it could just be some offhand comment. After all, Barristan Selmy mentions that the, the, the secrets... Uh, of the kings that he's guarded belongs to Daenerys now. And because he can't not pick up secrets standing guard for them all those years and hearing what they talk about. The king's guard hears some serious stuff that is not meant for other ears because they're so trusted. Even Ares trusted the king's guard despite his paranoia. So yeah, I really wonder about that. What did Rhaegar say in Aries's presence, or in Jamie's presence, or in Barristan's presence. It's possible Barristan heard a thing or two as well. There's, there's other ways for us to learn about these old prophecies. Also, the, the trident, the talk about how Jamie just really wanted to go fight on the trident, and it really, it really hurt his, <laughs> it really hurt him. <laughs> it hurt his feelings. And it's funny too, because they should have listened, should have let Jonathan Derry stay behind and sent Jamie Lannister to the trident because Derry was not going to, wouldn't have become the Kingslayer. N neither would have Barristan Selmy nor uh, Lewin Martell. But hey, road's not traveled. So let's talk about the scene down in the jails. This is fascinating. There's so much going on and it's amazingly presented because, I mean, this Renifer guy, he's, he's so goofy and silly. The, the hilarity and ridiculousness of this guy is an interesting tactic by George to hide what's an extremely meaningful and conversation full of rabbit hole details. So is Varus the key, Joe Buckley asked, to discovering why 
Jockin was in the black cells in the first place, uh, along with Biter and Rorge. We actually do know why Biter and Rorge were in the black cells, running a uh, an underground animal fighting ring, which was quite illegal. Now, I don't understand why, exactly why that is black cell material and not just regular cells, but that is what George has said off page. Uh, that's from an interview, not, not like uh, written in any of the books anywhere. So the bigger question, of course, is did Vars know anything about Jockin? Maybe, maybe not. I, I tend to lean towards no. I tend to lean towards him being fooled. On the other hand, Varus is awfully skilled with mummery of his own. He might recognize that in someone else. On the other, other hand, Jockin's mummery is partly magical, and Varus might not be able to see through that. So here's this line that refers to them. It's ac- they're actually mentioned here. Quote, There were three others, common men, but Lord Stark gave them to the Night's Watch. I did not think it good to free those three, but the papers were in proper order. Yeah, so what did Renifer Longwaters know about those three also that maybe we didn't know about? I mean, I don't assume he knew about the faceless man aspect either, but I still would like to know why he thought those men should stay in jail. What, what, what read did he have on them? What reasoning is it? Um, it might be something very straightforward, but still, I'm curious. So yeah, J- Jock and Biter and Rorge is who he's talking about. Uh, we're going to be seeing them again. So all these characters aren't done. Biter and Rorge are going to be pretty big in the Riverland storyline, uh, especially with Brienne. And Jock and we've already seen pop up in Old Town. Now, who signed the papers for those release? That's, uh, the, she says the papers were in proper order. Who, where did, was it just Lord Stark or was it Rugen? Hmm, not sure. Another line, the, the crown pays wages for 20 turnkeys, my lord, a full score. But during my time, we have never had more than 12. This is long, long been cited as evidence for Littlefinger's embezzling of crown funds. Where are those wages going if they're... Uh, he, Longwaters is suggesting that no one's being paid that money. But if it's budgeted and on the ledger, it's probably on the ledger is that they're being paid out. But Littlefinger's probably just putting that money in his pocket instead of actually giving it to some employee. So there's phantom employees. There's serious book cookery going on here, most certainly. And that's so cool that no one even mentions Littlefinger. This, this is, so this is kind of what I was saying about this conversation is full of rabbit hole details. Like this, this one line right there leads you into this whole big business about what Littlefinger was doing. You could go off for hours on that. <laughs> we won't, but yeah. Well, maybe we will, just not right now. So let's dig deeper into it and give a big long quote because it's just so fun and it, it sets up this next thing I want to talk about. Laura Brandos mentions that this, this is perhaps one of the funniest things George has ever written. I see you wonder, what sort of name is that? The, the man had cackled when Jamie went to question him. It is an old name, tis true. I am not one to boast, but there is royal blood in my veins. I am descended from a princess. My father told me the tale when I was a tad of a lad. <laughs> Longwaters had not been a tad of a lad for many a year, to judge from his spotted head and the white hairs growing from his chin. She was the fairest treasure of the maiden vault. Lord Oakenfist, the great admiral, lost his heart to her, though he was married to another. She gave their son the bastard name of Waters in honor of his father, and he grew to be a great knight, as did his own son, who put the long before the waters so men might know that he was not basely born himself. So I have a little dragon in me. Yes, I almost mistook you for Aegon the Conqueror. Jamie had answered. So one thing I find extra funny here is that this dude is making a really big deal about his royal blood, his Targaryen royal blood, to be clear. 
to the Kingslayer of all people, literally the man who killed the last Targaryen king. Seems like you'd want to de-emphasize that connection there, Renifer. But in addition to the hilarity of this conversation, there's a tad of a tale to go with the history he speaks to. And in the same way, this guy isn't a tad of a lad. He's quite large. I mean the same. There's a lot of history here, not actually a tad. And as usual, in that history lies some familiar and foreshadowy elements. So it truly is an amazing conversation, despite the very silly man doing most of the talking. Consider, if you will, that the name of this royal son, this royal bastard son that he descends from, is not just Waters, but John Waters. Hello, John Snow Reflection. Reflecting in the waters, you could say. John Waters had a twin sister named Jane Waters, but we don't know anything about her except that she's a good first example of the concept of a lost branch containing king's blood. And there's an awful lot of that suggested here. Their mother, meaning the, the princess that Renifer descends from, the one with the royal blood, was Elena Targaryen. She's a solid candidate for an episode of her own someday. She was one of the three sisters of Baylor the Blessed who locked him away in the Maiden Vault. She's the one who likely lived the longest. We don't actually know when Dana the Defiant passed, but she lived into her 70s. So that's, that's usually going to beat most uh, lifespans in Westeros. She outlived several husbands, the first of whom was Ossifer Plum, the very same cited in the six-foot member anecdote told by Tyrion, and none of that Brown Ben Plum, who is probably Elena's descendant as much as this Renifer is, is in sarcasm. So these are real connections, meaning Brown Ben Plum is also related to the same Elena Targaryen that Renifer Longwaters is claiming descent from. So, whoa, right? That's a really obscure but important connection. A lot of references to being long in her descendants. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> long members, long waters. <laughs> Good catch. Renifer says, so I have a little dragon in me, which is comparable to Brown Ben Plum saying, I have a drop of dragon blood in me. That's cool, right? But Elena also married into House Penrose and had children who carry that name. We don't know much about that branch either. So there's Penroses out there with Targaryen blood too. We know a lot about John and Jane's father, Oakenfist. His, his true name was Alan Valerian. This was Elena's lover. They never actually married, though they wanted to. He was born Alan of Hull, a bastard later legitimized. Now, we've done a full episode on him and on his father, who was the greatest explorer of the oceans uh, that we know of, um, except for maybe Alyssa Farman, but that's, uh, we did an episode on her too. So you can listen to them both and make your own judgment. His name was the sea snake, Lord Corlys Velaryon. Now, the Velaryons have been connected to the Targaryens for centuries as vassals, even before they came to Westeros. They most certainly have royal blood in their history as well. So... This John and Jane Waters probably had royal blood on both sides. Alan Oakenfist's older brother, Adam, was a dragon rider after all. He was one of the dragon seeds. Pretty strong evidence that he had royal blood, or at least blood of the dragon. And what is my point with all this? My point is that if you go deeper into this rabbit hole, consider the implication of the Longwater's tale as it pertains to the usual way this phrase is uttered. The way he says it is, my royal blood. But if he had said my king's blood, you would immediately think of Melisandre and burning of children and, and you, the royal blood has power and all that. So the point is that Brown Ben Plum, Renifer Longwaters, House Penrose, House Valarian, untraced bastards of Aegon the Unworthy, his parallel Robert Baratheon's many bastards, Dalla and Mance's baby, everyone in between. This concept of royal blood is just, it's out there. It's fuzzy. It's hazy. You can't pin it down. And this is one of the implications that king's blood is actually fairly common. It undercuts the idea that royal blood is actually special. 
I mean, technically, Jamie's got royal blood, and it isn't necessarily because his son sat the Iron Throne. You could say that's the case, but also the Lannisters were kings back in the day of their own rights. So, like, is there an expiration date on king's blood? I, how does that work? Is Sansa royal-blooded because of Rob or because of ancient Stark heritage or because of both? You can you could do this with almost any main character. Now, don't get too far off the the pathway here, though, because what matters is what people believe, as well as what how the magic really works. That matters too, but how people believe it works matters the most. Because Melisandre, if she believes royal blood has power and she's going to act on that, those people are going to be burned just the same, whether or not the magic is real behind it. That sorcerer who cut Varys. Maybe he did it because of Varys has blood ties to a family like House Blackfire. That's a theory that's been around for some time. So one of the points here is that you just can't nail this down. It, it sort of undercuts the whole idea that royal blood matters, or it implies that it's super common and this could be done a variety of ways. It's actually easy to find royal blood. So there's a lot of ways to interpret it, but the point is pretty clear that it's out there. There's lots of it, and you couldn't possibly trace it all. Jamie's memory of uh, the search for Varys is a big part of all this too that's related to visiting Renifer Longwaters and searching the uh, areas beneath the castle, the secret passageways. He's thinking a lot about dragons. This is part of where, why he's thinking about Rhaegar because he, think, he sees the dragon mosaic there, which is one of the pieces of evidence for Varys's Targaryen loyalty or Blackfire loyalty. A dragon is a dragon after all, as they say. So it's kind of neat that you see a repeat of uh, Jamie's trying to keep people alive while Tyrion and Cersei go off killing, as Joe put writes. <laughs> what he tells the turnkey killers, meaning uh, the two Kingsguard who just blindly follow Cersei's orders to kill the guards before they get questioned, is really similar to what he tells Mandon about checking with him if Tommen gives any strange orders. Like, if Tommen orders you to kill his horse, come talk to me. And that's ex pretty much exactly what Tyrion said to them too. Is like, if Joffrey orders you to do this, you know, come talk to me first or talk to his mother. Don't let him ruin himself. Protect the king from the king. There's a, what, what we brought up near the end of the Cersei chapter was this very dark hint from Tommen that Joffrey was abusing him or at least something that maybe borders on abuse, if not outright abuse. The idea that Joffrey or that Tommen was going away inside his mind as Jamie pulls him aside to talk about. And yeah, we don't get a, a full story on that. And it's, 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 you know, it's kind of uncomfortable to think about. You don't want to compare it to say Euron and, and Aaron, but it might be mm, vaguely like that, or it might be a, a bit of a parallel to that. But Cersei comes over and is just, she's more concerned with Tommen mispronouncing Joffrey's name than the fact that he's expressing and trying to share his trauma, which was certainly a difficult thing to do, especially at his age. So uh, Cersei outside of her own POV can seem even harsher than she does within her head, which is hard to do because, man, she seems rough <laughs> when she's, when we're inside her thoughts. Again, just real quickly to mention Tywin's corpse because it's a big part of this chapter as well. The progression and symbolism itself continues because Jamie is standing in front of it for so long. I, I'm not going to quote it because it's just so gross. But he gets to see it happen over the course of this long vigil. And blah, it is so bad, right? But 
there's more to it as well. It's such a fitting image that Baylor the Blessed statue gets shat on by a crow, which is meaningful that it's a crow, I think, that on Tywin's funeral day, it's he's so much the opposite of Baylor. They made Baylor's steps a mockery by executing Ned there. Tywin's general means of murder and treachery and breaking traditional and cultural norms left and right just for small benefit is so well symbolized by a crow. Despite all the various stenches and Jamie's guilt, he continues to think about Cersei cheating on him. All throughout everything, the horror of Tywin's corpse, rethinking his these terrible memories associated with his father, with, with uh, Rhaegar, with Gregor, with all these other memories that are that he's associating together in his state of mind, which is uh, heavily influenced by his lack of sleep. He's still more so than just about anything else is concerned with her infidelity. And despite this, though, he gives her some good advice. He gives her good advice at the end of the chapter. He really would make a good hand for her, even though despite what Kevin and Cersei argue about, I think he would be pretty good at it. And... Brandon Winslow notices this perverse compliment she gives him in response. It's the last line of the chapter. You know, for a moment, you sounded quite like father. She means that like is a good thing, which is unsettling because Jamie doesn't want to be like father, at least not in most ways. And they both, we noticed how they both realized they didn't love him, how they're not missing him for his presence in terms of love, but missing maybe him in terms of his protection. Still, Jamie probably didn't like hearing that. But we don't see his reaction to it because it's the last line of the chapter. We also see uh, Loras Tyrell and Balin Swan being decent again, offering to help Jamie with his vigil. But Cersei would be so furious if Loras Tyrell was standing vigil over Tywin. <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was not a good idea. Little Stoneheart vibes here when Cersei comes in dr- uh, dripping wet with her hooded cloak and the hour of the wolf. His sister lowered her hood and made a face. The drowned wolf, perhaps. Yeah. Hmm. Pycelle makes a, a, a small but important quote, uh, or note rather, about the Great Plague out, outbreak in Old Town in the 220s, which maybe we'll learn more about that through Sam, but it's relevant, Great Plague, Grayscale. You know, Grayscale is coming to Westeros and it may uh, be particularly big at Old Town. After all, port cities are always hit the hardest by plagues. Here's a really funny note from our flick commenter, Lefessa. The quote is, Pycelle's beard had been magnificent, white as snow and soft as lamb's wool, a luxuriant growth that covered cheeks and chin and flowed down almost to his belt. Wait, what? How did he know it's as soft as lamb's wool? That was her comment. That just made me bust out laughing. Yeah, how did Jamie know how soft Pycelle's beard is? <laughs> made me laugh too, but I have, a, I weirdly have a theory. Yeah, just I, that, I like your theory. Go for it. Just that Jamie was very young. He was like a child and he interacted with Pycelle. There's a lot of theories about Pycelle and his connection to the Lannisters. And Pycelle's, Pycelle's a maester and he would read to Jamie or I don't know, something. They were presented at court when they were a little while after they were born, if I recall correctly, to Tywin and, and Joanna brought them to court when they were, I think, five or six years old. So yeah, he could, he really remembers it apparently, but yeah. that's my big theory. It does. That's the, that's the only theory I can even, that I've been able to imagine that makes any sense because he's not going to have touched it as an adult, most likely. <laughs> Unless he was cutting off the beard, which Jamie didn't do. Yeah, we know that was uh, Shaga. <laughs> yeah, Shaga. Like later we get a POV. He's like, and that Pycelle's beard, Never it was I so felt. soft. Never have I felt something so soft. He cut it off and he made himself a little pelt. Yeah, he kept it. 
Shaga kept there. We're going to see Shaga later with Faisal's beard. <laughs> uh, Stefan B with an insightful question. Did Aries know that Varys was Rugen? I tend to think no. Aries was not big on traditional torture. He was big on burning people, which would be done up and would not be done down in the black cells. That would be done up. You know, he did that. He did that in the throne room for some people. So uh, it is possible though. Um, but yeah, I kind of doubt it. Aries wasn't very, wasn't very clever. He wasn't very, uh, alert. So eh, I'm guessing no. It is it's interesting to consider though. When Rhaegar says to Jamie, we shall talk when I return. It's a little similar to Ned t- saying to John, you know, we'll, next time I see you, we'll discuss your mother. And then that never happens because the person dies. <laughs> so they, they, there is no next time. And that's uh, that's pretty cool. Or a nice little nod there. Uh, Brienne and Jamie, another parallel to them. They're both engaged in somewhat futile investigations here. Jamie's more aware of it. He knows that Rugen is Varus. He knows he's not going to find what he's looking for down in the dungeons there because Varus was gonna, is going to have been too clever to leave clues. But uh, meanwhile, Brienne is, is searching for these, these daughters that are probably out of reach for her. Now, there's this quote here. Uh, the young lion, he thinks of himself as being the young lion when he was 15, and that's what they were, what they were calling him. But he thinks of how the boy, that boy is dead now. And that, to me, is a, is a nod to Jon Snow, who is the same age, roughly, as Jamie was when he got the nickname the young lion, and the same age Rob was when Rob got the nickname the young wolf, and the same age Daron the first was when he got the nickname the young dragon. Well, the kill the boy concept of kill the boy, become the man. And that, that's what Jamie's thinking of here. That boy that was the young lion is long dead. Now he's this man, Jamie, that's an entirely different person. Similar concept. Lady Leaf Underhill with a nice catch here, thinking of how Jamie is so detached from his fatherhood to Joffrey that he thinks, if I had just only stopped Tyrion, then I would be the kinslayer, not him. Well, Jamie has been told by Tyrion that Tyrion killed Joffrey. So Tyrion's the kinslayer no matter what. <laughs> but it, it's interesting that Jamie doesn't see it, doesn't think of it that way because he's just <laughs> so detached from Joffrey's uh, connection to him. Okay, that is all for Jamie. Let's go on to another one that has a lot of vibes connecting them. We get to go Jamie or Cersei, then Jamie, then Brienne all in a row. And it won't be the only time we do that in this book. Brienne 2. This one is the one with a new squire and a new shield, a.k.a. Duskin Tales. Yeah, I like that you looked over to me for the woo. <laughs> That's right. I'm starting to think just, that... Just real quick, if yeah. anyone doesn't know, I'm a huge Duskin... I'm a Duskin Tales. I'm a huge <laughs> DuckTales fan. Huge. Huge, I say. She says. Hmm. <laughs> so I'm starting to think that Brienne's Ark and Feast may be the best embodiment of Valaridus. She's going around, not meandering, but not rushing either. Paying close attention to details, learning the history of lesser known but important places. Just replace her fighting skills, which I certainly don't have, with an obsession for Song Ice and Fire, which I do have. So, yeah, that really describes what we're doing here, right? We're not, we're not rushing, but we're not meandering. We're paying a lot of attention to details, maybe too much. No, <laughs> Learning the history of lesser known but important places. Yep, that's what we're doing. Yeah. But this chapter is particularly special in that regard because some of the history she interacts with is her own history, but she doesn't even know it. But we do because we pay close attention to the details. And that's why you're here because you pay close attention to the details and we are united in that love of paying close attention to the details. The the chapter starts with the following line. 
The gates of Duskendale were closed and barred. No, but not for long. She gets in pretty quickly. Duskendale is where Brienne repaints her shield and meets Pod soon after. Maidenpool is where she goes afterwards, and not in this chapter, but in the next chapter. And she's going to interact with Randall Tarley, Heil Hunt, and eventually Nimble Dick Crab. So that's what this is setting up. Here we learn not just older history, but the recent history of the area, how the War of Five Kings impacted Duskendale and the surrounding countryside, and how those two things sort of mash together. It's really interesting how George takes this old atrocity of Duskendale and the defiance of Duskendale and all the things that were done then. It wasn't that long ago, 17 years or so, and merges it with the story of Duskendale recovering now. It's, it's quite cool. Given the nature of her quest, she thinks about Santa and Arya and tries to consider what their thought process might be. She's trying to unpack, well, where would they go if I were them? But note how much of this quote refers to blood connections. Or would she seek her own blood instead? Though all of her siblings had been slain, Brienne knew that Sansa still had an uncle and a bastard half-brother on the wall serving in the Night's Watch. Another uncle, Edmure Tully, was a captive at the Twins, but his uncle, Sir Brynden, still held River Run. And Lady Catelyn's younger sister ruled the Vale. Blood calls to blood. Sansa might well have run to one of them. Which one, though? She's pretty close to that Lysa idea. And that's probably... Except for her really being like, yes, Lysa, that's who I'll go to. Yeah, <laughs> the one who's... <laughs> except for the she choosing that. She was motivated by blood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you got to figure there's a decent chance the same thought process occurred to the Mad Mouse. Because as we talked about last time, the Mad Mouse does go to where Sansa is, does figure out where Sansa is, apparently, or at least goes to the right location. And it makes sense that he would have thought this through similarly. Like, well, if I was Sansa, I would go to my aunt, or at least consider my aunt. She makes the most sense to go to... Other than being dead, but yeah. Closer, River Run is super in danger. Yeah. The Vale is much safer and is closer than the Wall. Yeah, the River River Run is literally under siege at this moment. So yeah, it's not like, it's just what what good would it go to go there even if Sansa was there? (laughs) It's like she's not going to get Sansa. So in addition to Brienne's own bloodline discussed between the lines, uh, we have the front and center discussion of houses Darklin and Hollard, which are essentially gone now. House Darklin used to be King's. So here we go, back with Renifer Longwaters' conversation. Do the long-lost descendants of House Darklin on the female side have royal blood too? In this chapter are mentioned other offshoots of the Darklands, the Darks, the Darkwoods, the Dargoods. They weren't killed off by Ares. So what about them, right? Well, here's a quote. Lord Dennis was the last of them, the sweet young fool. Did you know the Darklands were kings in Duskendale before the Andals came? You'd never know to look at me, but I got me royal blood. Can you see it? Again, it's the same thing, right? They're all, it's just everyone, it's this wonderful theme here of, uh, we've all got royal blood. George has really put his finger uh, on the scale for this one, and I love it because I, I definitely didn't see quite how prominent this theme was the last time I read this book. Or, or To be honest, I've never put the books under the microscope that I have that we're doing under Valor every read is. And also, it comes after having been obsessed for so many years. So it's always cool when we realize something that we took light note of is actually something much bigger. It's so pervasive. It's great. The Maester at Duskendale tells the story of the Lace Serpent, who is the last Lord Darklands, Mirish wife, Sorala, who most seem to blame for what happened to the city. That seems pretty crazy to blame her for it, but... 
While they claim she poured poison in his ear, a metaphor for manipulating him, and maybe she did. I don't know. It doesn't sound very realistic. It sounds more like straightforward sexism and xenophobia because she's also a foreigner. Uh, the Lord makes all the decisions. He's the one who has the last say in it. Well, I don't. So it's it's kind of strange to blame her when he's got the final say. But I mean, maybe she was given good advice. <laughs> maybe she was given good advice, and maybe she was like, "Don't do this." Who knows? I mean, we just don't know. The, the point is that. We know so little that the exact opposite could be true. That's how little we know about it. Speaking of parallels here, the story that defines in Duskendale, defines of Duskendale has a parallel in Fire and Blood. Lara and the Rogars are blamed for the Lysine Spring, and that causes the secret siege where Aegon III is trapped in his own castle and a lot of people aren't even aware of it, that it's happening. The king is under siege in his own castle and people don't even know about it because it's all happening within the Red Keep. Aegon and his wife, Lara Rogara, were trapped inside Magor's Holdfast with only about 20-some, 30-some other people. People went in undoing all that. The fallout from all that was trying to blame the foreign influence on the king, saying, well, we don't want to blame the king, but blame his foreign wife and her influence. Same business here. They're trying to blame the foreigner for something that doesn't really have a foreign tinge to it. I mean, rebellion, uh, demanding better tax policies. Like, what's foreign about that? There's no... <laughs> it's just pretty... It's all very domestic stuff. Again, it could have come from her, but I mean, it's easy to see that it's probably nothing to do with her at all. I mean, it's true in countries today. Yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> you you're right. You have some other concepts becoming popular, political concepts, and people are like, that is, you know, Russian or... Yeah. <laughs> et cetera. I'm, we're not going to get into that, but it's true. Yeah, I mean, just... Xenophobia is is just rampant. Yeah, throughout history, right now, et cetera. Exactly. Um, so that's the point. Don't Don't take what's being said here as the true story. Just listen to what they're saying, but try to read between the lines. But it's also hard to not notice that a reason to think that maybe there is some truth to this lace serpent being a bad influence is that Cersei has just met Taina Merriweather, a woman who is definitely whispering poison in Cersei's ear and is also mirish and is also really hot. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a lot of things they have in common here that it's hard not to notice considering they're introduced around the same time. The lay serpent wound up horribly tortured and then burned. Well, maybe that's what's going to happen to Taina Merriweather as well, but we'll see. Ares is said to have gone truly over the edge after Duskendale, and in addition to the horrible ending for the lay serpent, he took revenge against these houses and just villages. The quote here is, the hollered lands were taken, their castles torn down, their villages put to the torch. What did the villagers have to do with it? Come on, man. Ares was often jealous of Tywin, right? Outshined by him. This was a constant back and forth. Ares really hated this. He reacted poorly to his own feelings on the matter and was is very often made lame attempts to one-up Tywin that fell flat. I kind of wonder if Duskendale was Ares's Castamere. Destroying two families, root and stem, and just without a lot much justification. With just a shred of justification, but not really, right? So that does seem pretty similar. It's mentioned too. This is this is another similarity here in that it's a comparing it to Duskendale or comparing it to the reigns of Castamere. Is the Castamere, the reigns rather, the reigns of Castamere were the second most powerful house in the West, most likely. 
And the Darklands were possibly the most powerful vassal of the Targaryens within the Crownlands, other than House Velaryon. So amongst Westerosi vassals, and possibly the most loyal. So get this, it's frustrating because they were so good for so long. Seven, seven Kingsguard Darklands over the years. No one comes close to that. And hey, because this is History of Westeros, we're going to try to name as many of those as we can. Thanks to Nina for doing the legwork on this. Robin Darkland, Dark Robin was his nickname, one of the first knights of the King's Guard, part of the original seven selected by Visenya to guard Aegon I himself. Davos Darkland, a member of Magor's King's Guard, he marshaled 5,000 swords in King's Landing to fight for Magor at the battle beneath God's Eye, where he was killed by Lord Carl Corbray, wielding Lady Forlorn. Hey, we're going to talk about Lady Forlorn and the Corbrays in the very next chapter. Roland Darkland, unclear when he served, but maybe during the conquest of Dorne or one of the Blackfire Rebellions, since he joined during a battle and died an hour later. So he is apparently the youngest member to serve until Jamie and the shortest lived member because he was, he joined and died an hour later. Like that's hard to top, right? Stefan Darkland served under Viserys I, but defected to Rhaenyra at Viserys' death, became Lord Commander of the Queen's Guard. He was burned to death attempting to mount Sea Smoke, the very same dragon that was ridden by Alan Valarian's, meaning Alan Oakenfist's brother, Adam. Robin, or sorry, Robert Darklin, unclear if he counts. He was named to the Kingsguard by Aegon III, but was dismissed by Unwin Peak on the grounds that the king doesn't have authority to appoint Kingsguard until he turns 16 without his regents approving it. So mm, that one may not count. So that may not be one of the seven. It may be, uh, there may be a different one, set of, a different one in his place that actually does count, but we don't know uh, the other two or three in that case. And we don't know what happened to Robert Darkland after that. He may have been reappointed to the Kingsguard when Aegon III turned 16, for all we know. That would have made sense. Uh, the woman at the inn mentions that she was a dark herself. And there were two other darks in Fire and Blood. John Keel Dark, who I wish we got more on, but she was the bastard sister of Lord Darkland, who became Alisanne, Queen Alisanne's good Queen Alley's sworn shield. Yeah, the Scarlet Shadow. Yeah, and then we got Harold Dark, who was a member of Rainier's Queen's Guard. Also, not sure if she counts because, or he counts because Queen's Guard isn't King's Guard. And Rhaenyra's Kingsguard was maybe deemed unofficial after the fact by the history book since, her, uh, since she kind of lost, but even though her son took the throne, it's all very confusing uh, what counts and what isn't. In addition to us managing to find some small amount of sympathy for Cersei, given what she's been through, we can do the same for Dantos here. Think of what Barristan did. He saved Dantos with his request for mercy Yet Dantos' entire family and castle lands, all that was just slaughtered and put to the torch. And John T Dantos was just a little boy when this happened. So, you know, it's not really... So we should probably have some sympathy for his alcoholism because it's probably linked to that trauma. This, this distinct, overpowering trauma that probably makes it hard for him to want to be a real knight and want to actually fight, given what he saw at such a young age. It, of course, does not absolve him of his deeds, but it is another example of... Even the worst people some, have some aspects that we can find legitimate sympathy for because they might occur in people that we have real sympathy for. And, you know, it, it's, it's good to 
not be so one-sided about everything. This is a story about, about uh, grays, not blacks and whites for the most part, after all. But it's also about blacks and greens. <laughs> so straight away, this chapter promotes the idea that small folk sort of are coming back to life, not you know, metaphorically, of course, of life continuing in an area that was war-torn. They're rebuilding. They're trying to get back to normal. It's clever that we have this association with these battles that happened nearby during the War of Five Kings because of Roose Bolton's meddling. Remember, we've mentioned this a few times, but the battles that were fought near Duskendale was because Roose sent these armies to die. Nevertheless, that has this large effect on the area. Even though it was a slaughter, an ambush, where in a one-sided battle, there's still turmoil and chaos even now. Farmers and peasants were in hiding and they didn't know when it was safe to come out. They're starting to come out, selling their food, trying to make a little corner of niceness for themselves again. Now, as, as bad as it is here, it's so much worse elsewhere in the Riverlands where the real ravaging and full-scale destruction happened. And that's something to keep in mind. Brianna engages in conversation with this dwarf priest, a conversation that is maybe easy to, to skip over, but this is a man that's symbolic of keeping his goodness, keeping his kindness throughout all the horrors of war and the trauma. He still manages to stay with a positive outlook despite all that, which is really an incredible sign of strength, of inner strength that I think is not given enough credit uh, in the world, uh, which means it's not going to be given enough credit in fiction. And this is really tragic, though, because this guy with his really positive outlook ends up being one of the many dwarfs killed for being a dwarf because Cersei's declaration that Tyrion's head is worth money, etc., and the lordship. So this is more news of, of sparrows going to King's Landing. This is, this is part of that because this, this dwarf is in this area. And he certainly identifies with that, uh, that categorization. So it's really neat to what happens to a place that's been war-torn afterwards and there's all these bodies. Uh, secondary market appears. There's dead men's clothes and armor and banners and, and it just shows how much value even used bloody cloth has because it's rare. Uh, well, not rare, but it's valuable, even used and dirty and, and something that someone died in. You can't throw that out. We would throw that out or bury someone in it. This is too precious to be thrown away. It is really hard to put yourself in the mindset of, of what the commoners' lives are like. It ties in pretty well, as Joe points out, with the upcoming Broken Man speech where Septon Maribald talks about how, how helpless the commoners are, how little information they even have in terms of who they're fighting for. Sometimes they're fighting for one side and then just ordered to fight for the other side, and they have no agency or even understanding of what sides they're fighting for. So... Of all these people, all these dead bodies, of all these dead all of armor and clothing being sold off from these stripped corpses, almost all of those people fit that description. Almost all the soldiers that are lying there dead, they had very little idea what they were fighting for, who they were fighting for. They certainly did not know they were misled. They have no idea that Roose Bolton sent them to die in a cynical power grab. It's just completely lost to them. Even some readers don't know that, <laughs> but not y'all. You see specifically which houses too, the mailed fist, the moose, the white sun, the double-bladed axe. That's Glover, Hornwood, Umber, and Sirwin. So it's, yeah, you can, it's mostly the bodies of the Northerners because again, it was an ambush and there weren't a lot of Southerners killed in the battle. Well, there were some though. 
On the other side of Duskendale, we find these reminders of war in a different way. Uh, mass graves. The body's got to go somewhere and they're not burning them, which I suppose that might come up later uh, if the dead get this far south. So keep that in mind as well. There's always so many things to keep in mind. But it's also a, a moment for Brienne to show off how great she is. Of course, I don't mean showing off. I mean, we as readers notice this. Because Brienne is Brienne, she stops and prays for Cat and Rob amidst the, this northern mass grave. She's just such a good person. And she restates her oath. Quote, I will find her, my lady. Brienne swore to Lady Catelyn's restless shade. I will never stop looking. I will give up my life if need be. Give up my honor. Give up all my dreams. But I will find her. Restless shade indeed. Doesn't know how right she is on that one. That is very true. And you're unfortunately going to find that restless shade before you find Sansa. Of course, Brienne has to spend at least a few thoughts on Jaime. And this imagery is very similar to how he looks to Cersei, meaning how Cersei sees him during his vigil. Jaime had come walking through that mist, naked as his name day, looking half a corpse and half a god. He climbed into the tub with me, she remembered, blushing. She seized a chunk of hard lye soap and scrubbed under her arms, trying to call up Renly's face again. <laughs> That's really straightforward, isn't it? <laughs> the one person, she's clearly attracted to Jamie if she's immediately tries to think of, if she's trying to pour it over to Renly, who she was definitely very, very into. So this whole half a god, half a corpse representation can be interpreted a few different ways. But Joe says you could look at it as fairly simplistically as Jamie turning, um, oh, being less evil and more good now. Um, on the other hand, you could look at it as of, the other straightforward angle here is just simply how Brienne is coming to terms with her attraction for Jamie. And seeing him as, you know, half a god is partly uh, related to that. Now, interesting too how she just isn't, reacts to people calling him the Kingslayer. She doesn't like call people out for it, but it, it disappoints her to hear that. She doesn't like that phrase. She's adopting Jamie's attitude towards it, which is that it's, it's not really deserved. It's he's known for other things. He's still Sir Jamie. He's earned that. He's a knight. He had, she knows now that he had good reason for doing what he did, though she knows too that she'll never be able to explain that to other people. It's, it's not worth the argument. So she just uh, holds him in acclaim in silence. When Brienne visits the Dunfort to do more searching, Dunfort being the little fort there at, at Duskendale, she finds that Lord Riker has gone off to Maidenpool with Randall Tarley and left behind a guy named Sir Rufus Leek, which Joe suggests is a pretty good name considering all the vegetable markets we just saw that are uh, just starting to pop up again. Unfortunately, he's not much help, so you wouldn't know that we've got another, uh, yet another maester to meet and chat to instead. And it looks like there's a lot of maesters in this book. It's a very maesterly book. <laughs> there's a lot of ma not, and we haven't even gotten to the Citadel yet, but there's a maester in every single chapter we talk about today, all four, Sansa, even Sansa's. Now, House Riker fought for the Targaryens, and it was Lord Riker that we just saw in the anecdote about Tywin staring down the man who joked about him shitting gold. So, but we don't know if it's the same Lord Riker. I think this is probably the next Lord Riker, maybe even two Lord Rikers later, because that was a long time ago, that anecdote about the, uh, the stare down, because that was when Tywin was like 17, 18, 20, something like that. But the other point here is that if Lord Riker is hanging out with Randall Tarly very closely, and then Lord Riker fought for the Targaryens and doesn't like Tywin very much, He's a candidate for one of the so-called friends of the Reach that may switch sides to uh, Young Griff, to Aegon VI. So even these little offhand comments about Lord Riker 
matter, I think, in the long run. So the painting of the shield. This, if it wasn't clear to you already, that she's painting the shield like something she saw in the armory when she was young. And it's exactly the same as Duncan the Tall's shield. And the idea that she saw a shield like Duncan the Tall's in her armory is almost a dead giveaway that Duncan the Tall's adventures took him to Tarth at some point. Recall, too, that both Dunk and Brienne seek out a dark-haired, talented painter to paint their shield. Uh, Tanzel Too Tall painted Duncan's shield in The Hedge Knight, and Brienne, of course, has it done here. Other parallels, there's a lot of Duncan and, Dunk and Brienne parallels, but a couple more are prominent here in this chapter. I'll stick with just the ones in this chapter that I noticed. Uh, Stefan B. points out, one, that there's a preference for oak. Brienne likes oak shields, so does uh, Duncan. Oak shields are, give more protection, but they're usually too heavy for most knights to bear. But Brienne and Duncan are in a class, uh, not by themselves, but in a rare class of huge, extremely strong people that can actually make use of oak despite its great weight. Also, Dunk in the Sworn Sword takes two baths. And uh, so Brienne taking a bath here, so notably, and having the bath scene with, G Br uh, with Jamie, when very few characters have bath scenes, is uh, somewhat notable as well. Now, in terms of Brienne-Jamie parallels, moving away from Duncan, this comes with how their sharing of an unusual companion from the same house. Brienne meets Podrick Payne and is going to help train him up to be better at fighting, while Jamie is going to start training with Sir Illin Payne. So it's kind of the reverse. The Payne is the trainer, and the Payne is the trained. <laughs> and, of course, Podrick Payne is known for his... Uh, trouble speaking properly, his speech impediment, or like just his nerve. I don't know if it's an impediment, just it's an anxiety thing. I guess you can call that impediment. It's not a physical ailment. But Ellen Payne, of course, has no tongue. So there's also that parallel between them that there's a bit of a speech issue with them, communication problems. So it's really nice. It's a great way to end the chapter. Brienne meeting Podrick. I mean, that's, that's a good thing for her. She's got a companion. We like Podrick. He's a good person. He, he, you know, he's better than he deserves someone better than Tyrion, probably. And it's kind of sad that he feels abandoned by Tyrion. And it's part of why we feel like he deserves more. Um, not that Tyrion had much choice. I mean, Tyrion couldn't have run off with Podrick. I mean, what's he going to do? Go find him? He's like, Pod, I'm leaving. Come on, let's go. <laughs> there was just no choice there. So I don't want to hold Tyrion too much to account there. But he's escaping from prison, after all. Still, Podrick, we can still, that doesn't mean we shouldn't sympathize with Podrick feeling abandoned. He's a young boy and, you know, those are real feelings he's having. So... I wonder what Podrick's family's like. Yeah, because he's not... He's right. only a cousin. He's a distant cousin to Ellen Payne. They're not yeah, that closely like, related. What kind of father figure he has. I mean, you have to imagine a lot of squires. I mean, they have father figures in the night they serve and all that, even if they have a real father. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I, it'd be interesting to think about that. I think his father died young. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, Brienne again just proves how much more knightly she is. She's on this quest. She's got the, the great shield. She's got her squire. That's a knight. <laughs> so it's fitting that in this history, uh, a chapter that gives us the history of the defiance of Duskendale, that the gates are closed and barred because that's what Tywin was met with when he comes to rescue Ares. And the, they didn't, you know, was met with full stubbornness and a full intent to, to wait it out. Just as Barristan made his way into Duskendale unnoticed, they let him in because he disguised himself as a hooded beggar before pulling off his incredible commando raid. Brienne's able to enter Duskendale specifically because she's not seen as a threat. Remember what the guard says is, let her in, boys. It's just a wench. 
couple other things about Brienne and uh, where this knowledge might lead and how she may eventually learn about Duncan. Tree Girl points out that Jamie will maybe eventually see Brienne's sigil, uh, shield rather. And Dunk Sigil's shield is going to be in the white book. So someone might notice that someday. Someone might put that together. If not Jamie, maybe Lord Commander Brienne, which was portrayed on TV, which I, I'm not so sure is going to happen on, in the books, but I wouldn't discount it either. Duncan the Tall was Lord Commander too. So it would be another way for her to fulfill her ancestors' uh, parallel there. That would be kind of neat. So a couple of different ways that someone could make this connection by seeing the the shield in the white book and seeing that Brienne is carrying it. And that could just, especially if it's her, she'll figure that out. She'll be like, wow. So something to kind of hope for maybe. Also maybe a, a, a nod to the idea of a, of a goose chase, a wild goose chase, meaning it can't be accomplished, basically an uncompletable task. And where does she go to try to meet Dick Crab? Or she hears that he's staying at, uh, that he frequents the stinking goose. Hmm. Uh, very cool catch also from Tree Girl pointing out the Pine Barrens is where she's going to be headed. And the Pine, there's a, a very prominent Pine Barrens in New Jersey where George is from. It was also shown in uh, on The Sopranos in an episode or two, actually a couple episodes because the, <laughs> the mafia likes to, uh, is portrayed as dumping bodies there because <laughs> it's just so wide and, and vast and empty and all the same looking. And uh, George, of course, would have been aware of the Pine Barrens living so close there as a kid. Flick commenter Lufessa also points out this combination or perhaps parallel of, of Lancel and Podrick and how they're both outcasted from being squires for Lannisters and uh, having their life change dramatically from that first act for them. They're also a similar area because Lancel is, is going to be headed to, well, he's going to not keep it, but he's going to go to Derry for a while. And Derry, which was horribly destroyed during the war is extremely near this area as well. Liette Rubenfeld with a comment, the quote, half a corpse, half a king, sounds like Bran Bloodraven. Indeed, yes. So yeah, you, that's a great point. Yes, it does, half a corpse, half a king. That is very much uh, Bloodraven imagery. And it may be even more accurate for Bran, who may actually be a king, whereas Bloodraven was just king adjacent. <laughs> Hand of the king to two kings and perhaps sitting on the right shoulder of Brandon Stark, future king as well. Real briefly, a character we mentioned a few times was Brella, who was in Renly's household, then Sansa's. She was recommended by Varys, so she's probably a spy. Now, she's seen here in a brothel, not spying on anyone anymore, it seems, because this is like a, you know, a, a lower-end brothel, not the kind of place where nobles would be. Perhaps Varys himself is in hiding, or because Varys is in hiding, he's not able to employ her anymore. That's uh, maybe a sign of Varus's network not being as robust as it was because he's not able to be front and center as a master whispers, but an actual rat in the walls or little bird being one of his own. And now we can move on to our last chapter of the day. Sansa 1, making Marillion a murderer, aka gifting the gates. This is the third time we've had a making someone a murderer, I think. Maybe the fourth, I forget. But it keeps happening. There's you, you people commit crimes and pin them on people who can't defend themselves. That is the a very common play in the playbook of the powerful. Yes. 
true now and uh, harder for them to do what with DNA testing, but they didn't have that back then. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> Sansa only has three chapters in this book, but they're very long in total. She's fifth total in screen time, despite only having three chapters. But this is the shortest of those chapters. Still, there's a lot happening here. It does a lot of setting up the other two and the rest of her veil arc beyond this book. So pay close attention. Here's how it starts. Once, when she was just a little girl, a wandering singer had stayed with them at Winterfell for half a year. So when she was a tad of a lad? <laughs> <laughs> she was a tad of a lad. <laughs> Renifer may never have been. Though disguised, Sansa is the eldest living Lady Stark, and as such, she bears the responsibility of carrying on her mother's tradition of chapters with beautiful imagery. <laughs> Though the Vale is a great place for that, this time it's the dark kind, and it's not so visual, but oral, meaning the kind you hear. Quote. He sang of the dance of the dragons, of fair Jonquil and of her fool, of Jenny of Old Stones and the Prince of Dragonflies. He sang of betrayals and murders most foul, of hanged men and bloody vengeance. He sang of grief and sadness. No matter where she went in the castle, Sansa could not escape the music. It floated up the winding tower steps, found her naked in the bath, supped with her at dusk, and stole into her bedchamber, even when she latched the shutters tight. It came in on the cold, thin air, and like the air, it chilled her. That is really good, but also really dark, right? Sansa's chapters carry on the grand theme so large that it's in the title, A Song of Ice and Fire. Neither ice nor fire this time, but song. Those are the three important operative words in the title. There are fewer songs in A Feast for Crows than the other books as the story turns to places where the music has died never or never much existed in the first place. The Iron Isles, the House of Black and White, the Red Keep. Yeah. In the, and in the veil, the songs were mocking. And now the man doing the mockery is suffering greatly. And that too is a theme of sorts. Not only are the songs dying off, but so are the singers. And a few of them suffer quite horribly. Of course, we've already had Simon Silvertongue's Singer Stew. But now we have Marillion and later the Blue Bard. Kyburn may have done for Hamish the Harper as well as the Blue Bard. And Arya will slay Darian, though at least he probably didn't suffer. That's still another singer being killed. There is a powerful message here amidst the excellent chapter for Sansa too, though she seeks silence. She's also learning how to sing songs of her own, but these are the metaphorical songs. Songs are so commonly exaggeration, if not outright fabrication, yet they are pleasing and almost always harmless. And Sansa is learning not just to lie, but when lies can actually cause compassion or when they can be seen as compassionate. And here's the line. If a lie was kindly meant, there was no harm in it. Besides the songs, there's another recurring theme we've pointed to once Sansa outright choruses herself, which is lies and arbor gold. Sansa is tasked with pouring arbor gold for the lords at this meeting, and Nessor drinks down the lies as he does the wine. Littlefinger straight up says, you see the wonders that can be worked with lies and arbor gold? But there are reasons to deceive that are far more pressing that she considers as well. Quote, some lies you have to tell. Lies had been all that kept her alive in King's Landing. If she had not lied to Joffrey, his King's Guard would have beat her bloody. So she's learning about a variety of types of lies and the different situations you might need to use them in. It's just like a lie education here, uh, but without nearly the level of cynicism and selfishness that Littlefinger has. Not even close. Littlefinger is awful and Sansa is decent. 
this is set up nicely too. This these songs because Marillion singing about the Dance of the Dragons is pretty smooth way to reference Littlefinger's also smooth move of giving the gates of the moon to the junior unlanded branch of House Royce. There are fewer Vale houses more proud and ancient than the Royces, and the castle, the gates of the moon, could be described similarly. So it's an offer he can't refuse despite the price attached to this gift. Since it's Littlefinger's signature on the title grant, if Baelish falls, Nestor may lose his castle. It's not supposed to be given it away at all by tradition, really. So it's likely that the Vale lords who are sticklers for tradition and honor would try to undo this if they could. And Littlefinger knows all this. He knows that they're going to do that. And he knows Nestor knows that. So it's very clever and ruthless. He's exploiting the situation by saying, look, I'm going to give this guy something he can't refuse and he's going to fight for it because I know they're going to try to take it from him. And it's such a valuable thing that he'll never give it up easily. And that makes him an ally, a stubborn, powerful ally. Littlefinger notably points out that Bronzeon doesn't trust him. And Nestor immediately begins advising Littlefinger what his cousin will do, which is bring a small army. Now remember, Bronzeon Royce is the father of Andar, who we haven't seen much, but he's also the father of Robar Royce, who was killed by Loras Tyrell. He was one of the Rainbow Guard. And Waymar Royce, who was the first person killed in the whole story in the opening prologue. Littlefinger reminds Nestor, well, if your cousin brings a small army, well, I can't, I've only got 20 men, hint, hint. So basically he's trying to pit the two Royce branches against each other, which, so might come into real conflict, like a dance of the Royces, I guess. We have an episode on the Royces, by the way, so check that out if you're interested in more Royce history. There's a lot. They're a very, very ancient house. You're going to want to learn where all this pride came from. So Littlefinger learned a thing or two from Tywin about giving away what was never his to begin with. Great take by Nina here. The Gates of the Moon means nothing to Littlefinger. He's already working on his plot to marry Sansa and Harry Harding and have them claim a North Vale combo state here. He doesn't need the Gates of the Moon for himself, but it's so useful as, as, as a bribe, as a prize to give away because it's just so, so symbolic of the Vale itself. It's an ancient Aaron castle that they put so much pride into. It's symbolic beyond anything money could buy. The, the pride of these ancient Vale Lords is they're not so easily induced by money. Though they are induced by money, as we'll see, Littlefinger will, will do that. But this is, it's hard to, de- hard to emphasize how much more powerful and, and meaningful this gift is than, than cash would be, even a lot of cash. So this is, as Nina puts it very well, the beginning of Littlefinger's dismemberment of the Vale aristocracy by carving them into pieces and pitting them against each other through a series of inducements and lies. And we're going to get a lot more of that. We're going to get to see him operate uh, in a lane one and a lane two the rest of the book. There's a very subtle uh, little note here dropped as well. Let's quote it. Lynn Corbray is a dangerous man, Lord Nestor said doggedly. What do you intend to do? What can I do but make them welcome if they come? Peter gave the flames another stir and set the poker down. Stirring up flames is exactly what he intends to do. Very sneaky little line by George. He's going to bribe Lynn Corbray to bear steel at a parlay, which is a huge breach of decorum, which decorum matters so much to these Vale Lords, so it's going to give Littlefinger an excuse to to push back and get angry at them for for this breach. 
In other words, Lynn Corbray himself is the poker stirring the flames. Meh. Poker could also be a really bad joke about Lynn Corbray's uh, predilections for young boys. Hmm. Yeah. Which Littlefinger, a price which Littlefinger was happy to pay, by the way, because, well, that's the kind of guy he is. As Joe notes, we don't waste much time getting to Peter Baelish and answering some more of the big questions, as in, what's he been up to? What's he doing? What else can we learn about his personality? Quote, he had written 100 letters since Lady Lysa's fall. Sansa had seen the ravens coming and going from the rookery. And as we learned with Tywin, this is a big deal. This is where this is how politics is done. These, these, these letters represent alliances, inducements, the same stuff we were mentioning before. This is the vehicle for those bribes, or at least the, hey, come here, let's meet so I can bribe you in person and not put it in writing. <laughs> and things like that. This is all the beginning of that. So, you know, whenever you see the ravens flying, especially when it's Littlefinger making them fly, you know a lot is happening. Grand plan is not too big of a term. The line, a lot of you all pointed to this line that I is just so tough to hear that we, we, it was such, it's such a big deal. I pointed it out in A Storm of Swords before, well before we even got to this book that Littlefinger is going to say, eh, the wench is dead when referring to Lysa and how Robin misses his mother. Like that's his response. Like, wow, that's callous. And good take from uh, Brandon Winslow. Sansa doesn't like react super negatively to that line. She's probably just used to him saying things like that now. But very quietly, she's perhaps accounting all these things and, and making a tally of all the awful things he said. And that's going to come back to bite him uh, when this debt comes to be paid, when he's earned what he's got coming. Littlefinger mentions that he told Eddard Stark to trust no one, but that Ned didn't listen. Like, do you realize who you're talking to? This is Ned's own daughter. It's like he's so over-the-top arrogant and confident with Sansa that it just really drives home the point that she's his weakness, that he just, with other people, he's ruthless and thoughtful and, and right on and just so difficult to manage because he's so clever. But here, he just says kind of dumb things or at least not, maybe not dumb isn't the right word, but just so unthinking when usually he's so like constantly thinking and considering all the angles and like, how would you, how could you think this would make her warm up to you? I guess that's a big part of his missing, missing from his arsenal is he doesn't have as smart as he is, as clever as he is. He doesn't have, you know, genuine love for anyone. He's never going to be able to express that to anyone. He's, it's, it's the, it's a lie he's incapable of, of fulfilling, of telling, of, of living up to. You can't fake certain things. You can't fake genuine love. And Littlefinger doesn't even really try <laughs> because he doesn't understand how important it is. It's another really excellent parallel to Tywin Lannister. We brought up the letters as a parallel to Tywin just a second ago, but this inability to love or to see the value of love is something that is a bigger theme with Tywin because it's so open and because he has kids that he inflicted that on, whereas Littlefinger doesn't have children of his own, but he does inflict it on other children, children in his care. So it's a very similar concept. Watch out for people that don't understand love. <laughs> I mean, while it means a lot politically for the veil and what's going to happen going forward, for the moment, for Sansa, it only means one thing, which is danger. She worries her guilt is going to come out. She worries that her own nervousness is going to expose these lies that she's being forced to go along with. 
exactly what you'd expect someone of her age to be worried about, right? I mean, she's 13 and she doesn't have a lot of experience lying. So she doesn't know, she doesn't, she doesn't have the confidence of someone who has successfully lied many times like Littlefinger has. She doesn't understand how people react to lies. She doesn't understand the type of body language you need to display when you're lying. None of these things are uh, she used to. But this chapter, which we could have given some name about teaching Sansa to lie or something like that, uh, maybe that should have been one of the titles we gave it. So she's going to learn. She's going to learn the body language, the tone, the temperament, the telling people what they want to hear, why you should lie, when you should lie, how to lie, protecting yourself through lies, making people feel more comfortable through lies. All these things. And he sees, she sees these examples firsthand. She, he, he really explains this piece by piece. Like this is straightforward education. It's not subtle. He walks her through this decision-making process with exactly how and why he lied to Nestor Royce, what he was going for, what he expected to get, what he expected the reaction to be. And then showing, you know, as he loves to do, showing off that it went exactly the way he thought it would. As well as uh, we also see the value slash cynical value of beating people into agreeing with you. I mean, she, they torture the hell out of Marillion to lie. And it's one of these things that you can slide past a little bit because Marillion's so awful. He's a rapist. I mean... Having this guy tortured is like, well, this is maybe isn't justice, but you don't, you, you feel like he deserves something. So it's another, it's a good trick. George does this a lot where really awful things happen to people who are bad and deserve something bad, but not this bad. Perhaps the most classic example is Theon. Theon deserved awful things for what he did to Winterfell, but did he really deserve to be tortured by Ramsay? I don't think anyone deserves that. So I would say, no, he didn't deserve quite that much. Very important, though. The key lie that Sansa is being made to tell, and Littlefinger is pushing it so hard that he wants her to believe it, that he wants her to say it out loud, to even not even in private, he wants her to, to say who she really is. And this is where she, again, is so much like her sister and, and is on a parallel arc of, of remembering who she is. Quote, I am not your daughter, she thought. I am Sansa Stark. Lord Eddard's daughter, and Lady Catelyn's, the blood of Winterfell. We see that attitude of hers, which is a right-on attitude I agree with, like a yeah, yes, queen, especially Sansa, yes, queen, right? <laughs> in the show, when she talks to Ramsay kind of like this, but in, not internally, she says these things out loud. She's like, who are you? You know, <laughs> it's like, and it really works because Ramsay is, is, has a lot of, a lot wrapped up in his identity as a, as a bastard or not. So, there's just many different things that Sansa's learning here, but while, while staying true to what matters the most. So she's understanding Littlefinger more and more. And while she's not getting outright horrified by him, which the situation does kind of justify, she's able to stay a little more detached and not go mad or crazy or panicking, uh, go panicky by just, I mean, Sansa's not that type. She's usually... Uh, I mean, she'll blurt things out, but internally she's fairly stable with her thinking. She's not uh, chaotic like, say, Cersei. She doesn't have paranoia. She has Her fears are more rational and reasonable, and, and maybe they're more naive, but they're not paranoid, which is a big difference from what we get in other, these, some of these other chapters. Now, to be fair, as we said with Cersei, I struggle with calling her paranoid because so many of the things she's paranoid about are, are real things that it's, really are coming for her. 
but still she has, she manages this, her thought processes with, with a lot of chaos and, and moving around back and forth and inconsistency. Things that I do not see in Sansa. Sansa has a much more ordered mind. Now, uh, Sansa is also able to separate some of the good from the bad. As bad as Littlefinger is, she at least no, she notes, and maybe it's a little uncomfortable to see him see her give him any kind of compliment. Uh, but she's seeing how bold he is, and how even though he's not a knight or a warrior, that what he's doing requires a lot of courage, even if it's dirty and evil. And I find that interesting because it's very insightful to separate the deed from the ethics behind it or for the person behind it. That's pretty advanced thinking. Certainly, most of Westeros does not think that way. They associate the act with the person more distinctly and uh, they don't separate the, the person and the deed. He, other little tidbits here of, of little evidence of Littlefinger being creepy, just the way he talks to her, putting when he's like, you need to believe it here. And he puts his hand on her heart, but that's her breast. And he's like, he's put, just touching her and kissing her constantly. It's just constant creepiness. And that's the thing. She doesn't know this, how creepy it is because she's 13 and she doesn't know what, like, what's an appropriate amount of touching for an older man. No one's ever taught her that for the most part, other than someone like Septa Mordain. Zero. Who is, yeah, is zero. the answer is Zero. zero. The answer is zero. You're right. Yes. Let's be clear. I don't know if we needed to be clear, but let's do it anyway. <laughs> but someone like Septa Mordain, who was, would have said no touching is appropriate, but Septa Mordain was so prissy about everything, about so like, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. So it was presented to her as maybe a little bit over the top. And Sansa's like, well, how much of that was just um, over-education or how much of that is realistic? And uh, Joe Buckley points out that Tommen and Sweet Robin have a good bit in common here. They definitely do. They're, they're young people in power that are being manipulated by people above them who are probably going to die. They both have, uh, their, I wouldn't say Tommen's unhealthy, but he's not a robust child. He's certainly not on nothing like Sweet Robin's health issues. But, I mean, he's just a boy, just a kid. Sansa helps him, Sweet Robin, onto a weirwood throne and, uh, well, uh, a Stark helping a younger Stark, uh, or rather relative, not Stark, but just think about how similar this might be to Bran. You know, if Sansa becomes queen later and endorses Bran to be king sitting on a weirwood seat, boy, that's some imagery, right? And, and especially in this chapter, we have this singer pervasiveness throughout the whole chapter where Sansa can't escape the singing. And the children of the forest call themselves singers. So we have a little bit of a, vague representation here or parallel, whatever you want to call it, the association. And, and of course, this, the association of singers and dreams is a big deal, right? The children of the forest are big with dreams and dreaming. And now Robert doesn't mention dreams in part because they're constantly being woken up. They, they wake up like once every hour because of the singing and you just don't get very restful sleep. But still, that's a bit of a nod to being kept awake. And maybe though, maybe the, the idea of the pillows, because Sansa thinks how she needs to prop Robert up on some pillows. It's almost like he's not truly connected to the Weirwood throne because he's sitting atop something else that's put like a barrier that's in between them. Yeah. We see Mord's gold teeth in this one. Remember Tyrion gave Mord all his gold when he uh, delivered the message to Lysa that led to his trial by combat, that led to his escape from the Vale. And, uh, well, we see where that went, right into his mouth. It's a strange place to put your gold. 
I, that, in fact, Mord, if Mord is ever killed or dies, or someone sees that and has the chance, I might be like, I'd kill that man and take his teeth. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you made yourself a target there a little bit. But anyway. <laughs> Stefan B points out that Sansa's, while Sansa's learning a lying game here, it's another parallel to Arya, who is learning how to lie, the, literally the lying game at the House of Black and White. That's a great catch. Uh, Archmaester Rennie points out that the last song that Marillion sings is Alisan, which is also sung at the Red Wedding. And of course, Sansa parallel Alisan. Hello, major vibes there. There's a lot of them. I won't get into them now, in fact, but I will instead direct you to a place you can find that, which is our uh, coverage of Alisan and um, her husband, the old King Jaehaerys, in our Fire and Blood episodes. Probably the best place to start is the one that's entitled The New Old Tower of Joy. Tree Girl also mentions that Merlion's singing is his revenge for his unjust punishment. It's, that's kind of cool. Yeah, we talked about how he does deserve punishment, but not necessarily this. And he's kind of getting back at them by keeping them all awake. But it doesn't work on Littlefinger. <laughs> he doesn't express. He, he's back and forth isn't at the Eerie the whole time. So the person that, that most inflicted it on him isn't actually impacted by it. And that says a lot about where justice should be and where it isn't. That is it for today, y'all. We are done. Last week, we covered 159 minutes, 59 seconds. This week, biggest so far, it won't be the biggest of all uh, our batches of chapters, but it's one of the biggest. 183 minutes, 35 seconds, so far, we've covered 40, 479 minutes out of the 2,030 minutes. About 23.6% of the book we've gone through. As usual, you can check the video length compared to the podcast length to see how much editing we did, how much was cut out because of our ums and uhs and, and pauses and cats getting in the way. <laughs> sometimes I leave that in, but <laughs> sometimes we got to cut it. All right, next week... We've got Cersei and Brienne again and two first-time chapters. In fact, two chapters that the POVs only happen once in this book. And one of them is only once ever. The first one is the Kraken's daughter, the one with an Ironborn Scholar, a.k.a. and now a smart Greyjoy POV. Then we have Cersei 3 burning down the tower, a.k.a. the one with Tommen's wedding. The Soiled Knight. Kingmaker Jr., a.k.a. Be Still My Oak Heart. And finally, Brienne Three, the one with Hunt and Huntsman, a.k.a. The Gang Needs Dick. <laughs> they sure do. <laughs> Mentioned in this episode, as we always do, we like to re refresh you all on which of our other episodes got mentioned here because it's a good way to get more on any topic or subject that drew your attention. I just mentioned the... New Old Tower of Joy. And I also mentioned the House Royce episode. I mentioned the Oaken Fist episode, the Sea Snake episode. I guess I mentioned the Alyssa Farm and Sun Chaser episode too, though that was more in relation to these two rather than something we directly discussed. The Dance of the Dragons episodes that we have with Radio Westeros are perhaps as relevant as ever. Uh, and of course, we mentioned the Blackfire Rebellions on top of everything. I wouldn't say we went deep into that, but we certainly talked about it somewhat. And we do have quite a few episodes on the Blackfire Rebellions. It's certainly the subtopic we have covered the most. 
Thanks to everyone who came today. We appreciate you showing up live and making the chat fun for our live viewers. It is one of the things people look forward to, and I'm glad that it's something that we can uh, be a part of. Thanks to Ashea for managing so much at once, both people and cats and technology. It is uh, quite a bit to do at once. Thanks to Joe Buckley and Nina Friel for their invaluable assistance with crafting the episode, adding their thoughts all over, inspiring me to think about things differently and bringing up things I didn't think of in the first place. Same goes for our History of Westeros mods who do a fantastic job keeping the discussions going and sharing wonderful art along with it in our Facebook group. Also, Flick and Discord and Slack, shout out to you all as well. We've had a surge in... Uh, conversation and just engagement. I think that's part of what we said when we started Feast is it's because there's so many more unresolved mysteries. Feast is is not as well known as the other books because it hasn't been out as longer. So there's more to explore for a lot of y'all. So I think that's where a lot of the extra attention is coming from. Also, thanks to Michael Klarfeld, Claradox.de. I got to speak with uh, Michael's students on Friday. He is a, a teaches... Uh, English and other things to his students in Germany and I got to get on Skype and ask questions about America, American politics, American lifestyles, just any questions they had. It was really good. They had really good questions. Also, no, notably not to this, but man, his students go to school in the coolest school ever. They get to like view a castle from the school. Amazing. They were really, they were really nice too. Yeah, just they seemed really good, good kids. Uh, also, thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valor Reedus music. Thanks to Joey Townsend, Jesse Koal for our general, usual, our general, our usual Valor, our usual History of Westeros music, that is. Thanks to our Benjineer for making it all sound better. Thanks to our patrons who, without them, we would not be here right now. Because of you, I'm able to do this full time and Ashea part time, and we are so thankful for the ability to do that, uh, do this for a living. It's it's uh, such a blessing. Go to watch Here Be Dragons. As usual, we're finishing up. Uh, this time, we're not overlapping them. There's about 30 minutes before they start, so you got a little time, but check out they're Stephen Stark's channel. They are covering Clone Wars Season 1. Oh, that's fun. Ashe and I are actually watching that right now, so yes, we're, we we're way behind on that, but it's it's a lot to dive into. There's like 100-something episodes, right? Yeah, we're 9% into something that is about two days to watch. Two full days. Which I can days. tell you that because I use a service called Tracked, and it, it tells me straight up what a, what a big commitment I'm making. <laughs> <laughs> also want to shout out the Intelligent Speech Conference, which happens every year around this time, uh, technically in two weeks. Um, I'll be one of the presenters, and it's an online conference that will probably return to be live once that's possible, but you can find uh, how to get tickets for that at intelligencespeechconference.com or just come to our Facebook group or just send me an email and I'll point you in the right direction. Like I said, I'll be doing panels and so will a lot of other podcasters and, and great people who are smart that you'll want to listen to or at least check out what they have to say. And that's it. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next week for more Valar Rereadus.